This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Friday morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's still away in beautiful Georgia. Uh, I don't know why. I can't say Georgia without thinking of Ray Charles. And I'm joined here today by Cole Wissinger and, of course, Terry South, our wonderful, wonderful producer. And I'm super excited for today's show. It's going to be a great show. I have plenty of uh, plenty to talk to Spencer and Jerem of BYU Sports Nation about. I'm not going to say what could that be. Yeah, I'm not going to say why. There weren't baseball games last night. Well, there was no one. No one's going to the World Series. There was one. And there might be some huge news coming out of LA. Actually, it came out of Chicago. Um, but anyway, we don't want to give away too much more than that in case you haven't already heard. Uh, we are also going to be speaking with a guest here in just a few minutes that is going to be talking to us about whether or not Americans should trust their gut instinct. And I got to tell you right now, Cole, I feel like I should have trusted my gut instinct this morning and maybe stayed at home. Your gut's telling you all kinds of things and it's talking loud. (laughs) Oh my goodness, my gut is shouting which is more than I'm able to do myself right now. So, uh, yeah, hopefully he'll have some tips for me. It's probably not the same type of gut instinct that he's going to be talking about. But nevertheless, it'll be a great interview coming up here in just a few minutes. We've also got uh, plenty of empty news to talk about, (laughs) including uh, police in Canada looking for a thief with... uh, a uh, interesting item in his pants. You've heard about packing heat. Well, this guy has got something different. Packing meat, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that canine unit's going to be going crazy. Let's see. And uh, also, our third hour, we're going to be celebrating our 20th show of screen cleaning. Yay! And it's going to be a great one. We're going to be talking about... Alfred Hitchcock movies. Cole is I'm – th- I'm putting him under the spotlight here right now, but – and you've got two hours to prepare. I'm, I'm going to want you to and share – only two hours. I yeah. never thought about this before I show up in yes. the morning. I'm going to have you share your favorite Alfred Hitchcock movies during the third hour. Sound good? I think I can handle it. Okay. But before we get to all that fun stuff, let's head over to Terry South, who's going to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? White House Chief of Staff John Kelly on Thursday lashed out at Representative Frederica Wilson, Democrat from Florida. The congresswoman who listened in on the and publicly criticized President Trump's call with a gold star widow. I was stunned when I came to work. This is John Kelly. I was stunned when I came to work yesterday morning and brokenhearted at what I saw a member of Congress doing, Kelly said during the White House briefing. It stuns me that a member of Congress would have listened in on that conversation. Absolutely stuns me. Wilson was riding in a vehicle with the widow of the soldier killed in uh, Niger when the president called and she overheard the conversation. The congresswoman relayed to the press that she heard uh, Trump tell the widow that her husband, quote, knew what he had signed up for. But when it happens, it hurts anyways and called those remarks insensitive. Wilson is a family friend of the widow and a fallen soldier's own mother confirmed the congresswoman's characterization of the phone call. John Kelly was more on the 
he he was looking at it as you know this is a private conversation. Sure. Why is it on speakerphone? All this kind of stuff. So still kind of a he said she said situation. John Kelly was more relating the process of you know how how someone dies in combat. How do they get home? When does the president make this phone call? It's a difficult situation. When is it good? Yeah. When is it bad? And so it was kind of weird. He wasn't he 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 said that the. The uh, context and tone has been mischaracterized, right? And it Trump, really, Trump is trying to express an emotion, and it didn't translate for the speakerphone or something. I'm not sure how that all worked. And but. really, it's a case of he said and everyone else said, because... <laughs> sort, sort of, because John Kelly was in the room. Yeah. So here we have his announcement. The, I think the bigger point for me is here's week two of a guy in John Kelly who does not like to talk to the media having to walk out into the press room and clean something up that was made worse by Twitter. Sure. Because if the president didn't put out that uh, that's a lie and I have proof, then no one would have had to have asked for the proof, which would have been John Kelly. So he's he's saying that it's just a matter of context. Take yeah. it out of context. Sure. You weren't and there. If, and if you read it in in this in the idea that the president's trying to say that someone who signs up for the military at some level you have to understand this is a possible it's a outcome. possibility yeah it's horrible but that, it's not you know and yeah. and so he's trying to express this sentiment it's probably kind of awkward cumbersome way of doing it didn't come across well or you know you understand what he's trying to say yeah so and uh, the other side is everyone's really keyed up to jump on anything the of president course, says. Of course. And it seems like if we all just back off a second, he's going to say something worthy of jumping on well, <laughs> and going nuts over. That so. would be fine enough, but he just and then he makes take it, to Twitter and he, he makes, makes it, it worse. worse. Yeah, so that's why this keeps going. It's just it's interesting. It's also kind of tiring. President George W. Bush spoke out Thursday about the state of the American politics and denounced the bigotry that he has said seems... To have emboldened on as of late, people of every race, religion, and ethnicity can, ethnicity can be fully and equally American, he said during an address at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. It means that bigotry or white supremacy of any form is blasphemy against the American creed. The former president also said that our politics seems more vulnerable to conspiracy theories and outright fabrication. And as I understand, he never mentioned President Trump by name. No. Right. He didn't say his name at all. Similar with uh, President Obama. He spoke too, right? He spoke with, uh, there's two uh, gubernatorial candidates uh, running, and he went to uh, kind of campaign for them, and he spoke of just this general sort of feeling of discourse out there, and let's back off, people. I, You know, I know that that's kind of been a point in the news that, well, he didn't mention President Trump by name, but yeah. I think that that's kind of a general truth too whether or not president trump is in the discussion at all well i mean you know? the other side is in florida yesterday a member of he calls himself a white nationalist other people call him a white supremacist had a speech and they spent 500 600,000 on security to lock down the university of florida campus cuz this guy was going to speak for 2 hours wow right and then you get in the speech and people against him speaking outnumbered the people that were actually there to hear him speak. So he didn't actually oh even get goodness. to speak. He spoke for like, they said probably of the 90 minutes, he didn't even finish the two hours. Of you the still 90, get the full paycheck, though? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, he paid for the room. It's a good pay. Oh. Yeah, that's what I heard. So I I'm see. Ready. I mean, the tickets were hand not by the school, so I don't know. The whole thing. But it's this thing where now we now people can't even speak. 
and we just shout them down. Now, I, I, maybe that's not the best person to speak in general, but in the past, a person with that viewpoint wouldn't even come out in the public like that. To but speak it, at a university isn't something a white supremacist or those viewpoints would never be heard. And it's ironic and now, because— now they feel like, you know, it's okay to jump out and talk about this in public now. Yeah, because you have people that are exercising their right of free speech to shut down somebody else who's trying to exercise their right of free speech. Yeah. Hmm. And the university's caught in the middle because they support freedom of speech and they sure. want different ideas. Maybe not this idea, but, you know, they can't be complete hypocrites, so they try to allow things within reason. Plus but the guy paid for the room. The governor of Florida declared a state of emergency for this speech. Really? So they rolled out riot police. They were waiting if needed. They had all sorts of more security on camp. It just It was crazy. Wow. Yeah. So but I think it's the idea that... This type of discussion is now seen as, you know, let's talk about it. I'm like, really? Do we need to talk about this? Before, it wasn't really something we're going to even have an option for, but now it's on that, that level of, hey, let's, is this in our weekend plans? So yeah. on Thursday, uh, Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, Senator Patty Murray of Washington, introduced their bipartisan health care bill, flanked by 11 more Democrat co-sponsors plus 11 more Republican co-sponsors. Okay. So one, health care is not dead. That's good news. Sometimes, because it's kind of a tired story. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, we have a bipartisan, allegedly, deal. The problem is, last week, President Trump said, I think I might want to get a bipartisan interim deal. And then he came out with Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, and said, ah, we don't like this one. So they're not sure if he wants one or if he likes this one, which side of the deals are. Apparently, there's Republicans now. They're just sort of joking, like, is there a five-minute window where we can get health care passed because the president's on our side? Then he's going to be with the Democrats next week? Because he seemed for it, but then turned it down, like turned down the idea, right? Yeah, Yeah, immediately. So now it's all – the bill bill seeks to stabilize health care insurance markets by extending for two years government subsidy payments and insurance company used to uh, lower costs for poor customers. So it's just the, the they're stabilizing these markets as they're messing with it, causing everyone to have fear. And so insurance companies are like, do we continue with this plan? Do we back out? And then the whole thing crashes. What do we do? And then at the same time, President Trump has both said he's for this and against it at sure. the same time. So. Wasn't this your plan as a kid, though, when you could sense that your mom or dad was in a good mood? You thought to yourself, oh, yeah. this is a great time to ask for such and such, you know? I want to go. I'm going to ask for this video game, or I'm going to ask to go to so and so's house. And yeah, that kids and, and, kids and, have a good sense of that. And the key was you have to figure out which parent is the most open oh, yeah. for suggestion at the moment. Get that one on your side. Try to leverage the other parent. And they, well, he said yes. You're going to break my heart and take. Yeah, that's what you're trying. And it never seemed to work with my parents. I've lost count of how many times my daughter has come to me and said, "Can I have this?" And I say, "No." And then she gets upset. Come to find out, my wife had just said yes. Mm. Happens so many times. I always say, talk to your mom. Yeah. Then I just, you know, no problem. And then she looks at me maybe, like, why do I have to deal with it all the time? Maybe my new question should just be, have you already asked your mom? Yeah. All right, whatever she said, yeah. Check check with mom first. Uh, last night, the Senate approved, uh, voted in favor of a Republican proposed budget Thursday, making marking a crucial step towards the party's effort to enact tax cuts. The budget is proposed projected to expand the deficit by $1.5 trillion over 10 years and will allow the GOP to pass tax legislation in the Senate with a simple majority of 50. Bunch of stuff. So Trump's Trump Republican, I'm not sure who, actually whose plan it is. It's kind of all of theirs, I think. 
their tax plan is moving forward, I guess. Uh, Senator Rand Paul was the lone GOP member to say no. It was a 51-49 oh, but I vote. thought they were tight. No. No, it, I thought they go golfing together. Well, and they I do, they're tight. but it adds to the budget. It adds to the deficit. Okay. People, they want If they want cuts, they also want to reduce the deficit, and that's going to be tough. So, uh, And finally, this was kind of an odd thing that happened last night. For only the 17th time in recorded history. No, recorded being. Is this something about the Dodgers? They, they're involved. Okay. Because they were, they were NFL, NBA, NHL, and Major League Baseball games all on the same day. Holy cow. So on Thursday night, fans could pick between Game 5 of the National League Championship Series, Dodgers and Cubs. The Kansas City Chiefs faced off against the Oakland Raiders in the NFL. And there were three NBA games and nine NHL games. There were also two college football games, but we already had football involved there. Sports super fans had two more chances to experience a so-called, as they're calling it, a sports equinox. <laughs> This year, October 22nd, if the Cubs manage to come back and force a game seven against the Dodgers. So that won't happen, right? That's over, right? It's gone. It's, yeah. yeah. So this is game five. There's not even going to be a game six. So that's that's gone. And uh, if there's a game five of the World Series, that would be, what, October 29th. There could be, as they called it, a sports equinox where there's all these games and you can't possibly watch them all. Wow. That, I mean, that is exciting in a way, but in, it's also kind of sad because... You know, baseball has the longest season of any of these sports, right? Yeah. And I've, you know, pretty much watched or at least seen the score for almost every game over the year. And it kind of saddens me because you have this really important clincher of a game that a lot of people are not paying attention to because there are other more popular sports that happen to be on the same night. What channel was the game on? It was on TBS. Yeah. (laughs) These games used to be on network TV. But the ratings just weren't there for the network TV. Well, once you get to well, the so World Series, it'll be it on network well, TV. Yeah, the finals. But it used to be like these games, too, were yeah. leading into it. And the like the, the networks were like, we can't do this anymore. Same thing with the NBA. They had these – the big playoff games were on network TV. And now it's like maybe you'll see them on a, on a weekend. Just too many games. Well, there's too many games. And it's becoming uh, – the the view uh, viewers are becoming so segmented. Like I like this sport only type of an audience, is not like sure. a general mass appeal for the sport. Okay, and so the ratings aren't there for a network, but it works on cable. But you know, all, it's Same thing whoever, like, whoever, like, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the highest bidder gets it too, right? Sort of. Okay, because the networks have just chosen to kind of pass. Like a lot of games you'll see end up on ESPN. Mm-hmm. Well, that's like ABC, ESPN. It's all yeah. the same thing, and yeah. they choose to not put it on ABC. Yeah, they can't afford it. It's just the ratings aren't there to keep the attention they want, so they get more out of a sitcom rather than huh. a live sports. But hmm. the NFL definitely has this better system because so far this season, since football started, football can has nine of the top ten yeah. broadcasts. Uh, last night was actually in addition to being on normal television it was on Amazon Prime as well a really? lot of Thursday night games and the, this year and the NFL network and the so yeah you it's have, a it's a triple cast see mm-hmm. but something like football i could see them putting on network television because yeah. it's not as expensive because you don't have as many games not nearly as many games but it costs more right the the rights fees are way more than say a baseball or an nba for an in, and and like who was it? ESPN spent billions just to get Monday Night Football. Interesting. They get one game a week, and they spent as much as somebody that has like six or seven games. It'd be interesting. Maybe you could find or this because it'd be interesting to see what 
what sponsors have to pay to get their commercial aired during the Super Bowl mm-hmm. versus other sports playoffs like uh, the World Series? Well, the Super Bowl, it's like $3.3 million for 30 seconds. That's insane. But it's, they have that audience, right? Yeah. The same audience doesn't watch the World Series and the NBA Finals, I think because you're looking at a series of games versus one game. Right? I'm willing so. to predict, though, if... The Dodgers end up playing the Yankees. That's the what numbers are going to be for. a lot bigger. That's what they're hoping for. Because yeah. you'll have the two biggest media markets in the country, and people care about those teams. It's really, like, the two most expensive teams if too. It, if it was the Mets and the Angels, nah, eh. But I mean, you're talking about the Dodgers and your the Yankees. You have these historic teams, and oh yeah. yeah, people are all over it. It's a lot of history there. Well, I will be watching. Hmm. They can have my viewership. <laughs> for what that's worth. And to be fair, of those things, I tuned into um, Lonzo Ball playing for the Lakers last night. I Why? tuned into Why? a little bit of the NLCS Why did you last want to watch night. Lonzo Ball? And Because he was doing so horrible, and oh, okay. I like watching people fail right. in general. Okay. Just, See, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know how he played last night. <laughs> oh, you, it was I bad. saw him fall down or something. Snoop Dogg or, had yeah. a great quote about it, talking about how his dad put him in the lion's den with a pair of meat shorts on. Oh, like. okay. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's where he came up with his alternate name, Lion. Because wasn't he Snoop Lion? That For a while. Last he switched long, back. Right? He's back, yeah. So you chose a great night to channel surf onto the NLCS because at any given point, they were ahead by several runs. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. Oh, and the Thursday night game, Thursday night games, since they've started them, have been notoriously either boring or blowouts. But last night was just an exciting football game to watch. Yeah. There were five different endings to it. They kept calling penalties and bringing things back. You thought the Raiders won twice, and then you thought the Chiefs won twice, and then the Raiders finally won it for real. I, I love games like that. And, you know, my hat's off to the Cubs, too. They won last year, and I was rooting for them last year, even though they beat the Dodgers last year. But it's so dramatic because last year they faced off in the Dodgers against the same championship. Different outcome this time. Super excited to speak with Spencer and Jerem. But first, we're going to be coming back speaking to R. Kelly Garrett, who's going to be talking to us about whether or not we should trust our gut instinct. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away in beautiful Georgia. You know, in a world with conspiracy theories, fake news, attention-grabbing headlines, and filter bubbles, it can be hard to tell what's truth and what's not. But have you ever seen a news story and thought to yourself, I'm going to bet that's true, before you had all the facts? Most people probably have at some point, whether people differ or where people differ, is how often they do so. Well, Professor Kelly Garrett, a communication professor at Ohio State, studies online news and the way citizens use technology to shape their engagement with political topics. And uh, he's here today to talk to us more about our gut instinct when it comes to making these decisions and forming these beliefs. Professor Garrett, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. So I'm curious to know what, uh, first of all, what led you to conduct this study? So this is part of a a larger research project that's been going on for several years, uh, exploring the factors that lead people to 
express beliefs that are sometimes contradicted by available evidence. We've looked at a range of things having to do with the roles of technology and the roles of psychological predispositions that people have. So, and you conducted this, I know you conducted this uh, with your colleague Brian Weeks. I'm curious to know, what were some of the findings that you came out of this with? Right, so uh, a little more background. We, there, there's a lot of work out there that, that suggests that people's beliefs, when they get questions wrong about the political world, about the scientific world, their beliefs are often colored by their political predispositions, by the party that they're affiliated with or their political ideologies. But we wanted to look at something a little bit different. We wanted to look at something that wasn't related to people's political identity, but rather had to do with how they think about the world and what is true, how they decide what is uh, believable and what isn't. And so we focused on three factors in particular. One was people's faith in their ability to intuitively know what is true and what is not. The second was how important people thought it was to have evidence to support their beliefs. Interesting. And the third had to do with whether people feel that everything is politically colored, whether truth is itself a a political construct, something that is uh, dictated by the people who are in power or defined by uh, politicians and, and that sort of thing. So we looked at those three factors has they influenced conspiracy beliefs and uh, beliefs about some controversial political and scientific claims? And we saw some interesting things, uh, as you alluded to right uh, at the beginning. People's faith in their intuition, their, their sense that I, I can trust my gut to tell me what's true. Those individuals, people who were more likely to say that that's how they approach deciding what's true and what's not, they were more likely to also say that they believed in conspiracy theories. For example, mm. the idea that that uh, Kennedy was assassinated by through a conspiracy and not by Lee Harvey Oswald, or that the Apollo moon landings never happened, were in fact staged on a Hollywood studio. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, how do people decide which route they're going to take? Because you mentioned going with their gut, going with logic, going with facts. How, you know, what decides which route a person is going to take? Well, so that's a, that's a great question. It's an open question, and it's not one that we can answer yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right now, we're still trying to figure out how is it that people arrive at these kinds of conclusions. And, and it's really intriguing for us to see that people have these very different approaches to how they think about what they decide. I think many of us take for granted that the way we think about the truth, the way we go about deciding what to believe, is the way everyone does it. If you're someone who tends to trust your instincts, you may very well just assume that everyone else has the same approach. Everyone else feels that their initial impressions are almost always right, just like you. Similarly, if you're someone who says, I need the facts, not my instincts, before I can know what's true, you probably have trouble imagining that there are people out there who would disagree with that claim. People who say, yeah, you know, that, that the facts aren't that important to me. I don't really need to see the evidence. I don't have to confirm my hunch with data. I just know. So it's, this is the first step to be able to say, look, these two kinds of things, uh, intuition and, and a need for evidence, they're actually independent of each other. That is, someone can be really intuitive and also say they need to have factual evidence to back them up or they can disagree with both of them, or any pairing of those two. So it's interesting the diversity that we see, even if we can't yet say 
why does someone take this particular approach? You know, and it's interesting because I assume what you found in the study told you volumes about the the people's personalities because you know it seems like depending on which way these you these people go with their beliefs and their instincts they could be they could be really into gossip or controversy or maybe on the there it's the opposite and they don't want any confrontation and so they'll they'll just take what's given to them at uh, face value so I, I imagine you learned a ton about what these people are like uh, well, I think that it's it's very possible to to make to speculate about how this would color someone's interaction with other people. Uh, we don't have any clear evidence to answer those questions. I don't know how people interact with one another, but I think they seem very plausible. It was striking, in fact, how uh, how these beliefs, people's intuition, their need for evidence, weren't very strongly linked to some things that you might expect them to be. They weren't particularly strongly linked to how much education someone had. You, you couldn't say, well, someone who's more educated is naturally going to gravitate towards information and be more distrustful of their intuition. That's, that's not the pattern we see here. The relationships are there, but they're quite weak. We also don't see uh, a pattern with people who have a particular ideology leaning towards one side or the other, or people who endorse a particular party. So that's what makes these factors so interesting, is that they, they work in ways that are separate from all sorts of other things that we know already influence what people say they believe. Okay, so you, you mentioned a little bit about how people use their gut instinct to inform them on politics. Where else does this apply, and what other areas of our lives can this, or can this apply? Well, uh, I would say that, first, let me, let me clarify a little bit about people's use of intuition. Uh, what we found was that their, their reliance on intuition was a great predictor of whether they believed in conspiracy theories. Uh, but it wasn't a particularly strong predictor of beliefs in other kinds of uh, controversial or politically charged claims. So it didn't have a big influence on whether people believed that climate change was real. It didn't influence whether people thought that uh, vaccines uh, were safe or if they falsely believed they were contributing to autism uh, and, and a variety of other factors. So that distinction is important because it helps me answer your question. You said, well, sure. how does this influence our life beyond politics? A lot of uh, politically charged issues have real bearing on our day-to-day lives. Whether you think that vaccines are safe or uh, genetically modified organisms are safe to consume or whether uh, what kinds of dangers are posed by different forms of energy, nuclear energy, uh, fracking, and this sort of thing, all of these beliefs can be colored by political biases. But what we see is that uh, people who say that they value the evidence, people who explicitly need evidence to back up their beliefs tend to answer all sorts of questions, including questions about more scientific things correctly. So if you're trying to make a decision about, well, what is the safest way for, for me to uh, proceed with a, a medical procedure or to make choices about the kinds of foods I'm going to consume, people who have accurate information, people who seek that information out and choose to follow set beliefs along consistent with that, they tend to to make better choices. Okay, so that, those are some ideas of of how we can prevent bias. It sounds like, right? Yes, that's right. Okay, so 
as far as you, you mentioned conspiracy theories, is this really where conspiracy theories are born, these gut instincts that people have? Or is it just coming from people who like to stir up controversy where there really shouldn't be controversy anyway? So I, I don't think that the conspiracy theories are born in the gut. I think that they are uh, introduced in a variety of ways, and then people's intuition tells them that that sounds plausible to me. I think I think that's probably right. Uh, so I think that the intuition has more to do with conspiracy theories' ability to to stick around than it does ex- in terms of explaining where they come from. Uh, you you mentioned early in the introduction this idea of fake news. I think that like fake news, conspiracy theories have a variety of, uh, there are a variety of motivations for introducing them. Sometimes people are, are motivated by their political intentions. They're introducing something that will make their side look better or that will serve some political end. Sometimes they're just doing it because it's funny. In the case of fake news, they think that they can make some money by sharing a story because they'll get lots of clicks. So there are a variety of ways that, that um, false information is introduced into the information environment. And in a world where social media is such an important part of how we learn about politics, science, um, popular news, uh, the, these kinds of claims can often get a foothold because people... Uh, the people who, for whom intuition is, is enough, people who don't particularly place emphasis on, on having evidence, are quick to, to share this kind of content. And, and as it spreads, um, the more people who see it, the, the more chances there are for people to be fooled by it. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, for a lot of people, and you mentioned religion plays a part in this as well. You know, we we may have grown up with these beliefs ingrained into our minds by our parents, by our church leaders, maybe even, you know, co-workers. So it sounds like we, we really ought to keep an open mind, be curious, and uh, really seek to look for the evidence and the facts. So there, it seems like there is a danger in taking things at face value or relying solely on our gut, uh, our gut feeling. What, what about situations in where it might be a good idea to rely on our gut intuition? When can that be a good thing? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, there's actually a, a pretty large body of research that shows that our intuition is a crucial part of how any human being makes decisions. People who, who lack the ability to um, pay attention to the, the sort of gut feelings, the bodily indicators that the, they know that they've found enough information, people who feel like they have to reason through every aspect of every decision are actually often quite poor decision makers hmm. because the, this, the world we live in is so complicated. There's just so much information that we have to sift through that we do have to rely on our intuition. We do have to make a choice at some point to take that leap of faith and say, okay, now I know enough. Now I'm ready to move forward. So it's a balancing act. We shouldn't simply accept the claim because it feels right. But we also have to accept that at some point... Uh, we do have to stop that search for more information. We do have to reach a conclusion. You know, if, if we were without that, we could never make any kind of choice because there is always another level of detail that we could seek out. 
So intuition can be very important. The other part of intuition that's important is that it's, it's essential if you need to make a decision quickly. Um, you know, if you encounter a lion and you need to decide whether to run or not, your intuition <laughs> is a really good thing to rely on. Reason takes too long. Yeah. Yeah, instead of, you know, spending all the time, race, you know, in your mind thinking, well, I could do X, Y, and Z, but yeah, sometimes you just need to run or do something else immediately. Right. Yeah, good point. So it's really interesting because depending on what your belief system is or what it's based on, a gut a gut feeling or intuition could be defined as something totally different. And what I mean by that is for somebody who's maybe not religious, it really is like a gut instinct. But for somebody who maybe has more religious leanings, maybe this is, to them, divine intervention. You know, like, don't go down that alleyway. I don't know why I'm not supposed to go down that alleyway, but I'm, I have this feeling I shouldn't go down that alleyway. You know what I mean? I do. I do. And, and I agree that, there are, that intuition is a, is a big idea, and it has lots of... Um, Different, it has lots of nuance. People interpret it in different ways. And I, again, I'm not saying that we can't rely on intuition. I think that intuition has value. In fact, I, I think it's really striking that intuition actually doesn't have much influence on whether people are getting uh, questions about science and politics right. What's more important there is that they also value, actually, what's most important is that they value a need for evidence. So, it's fine. It, your intuition can be informative. And it, in the case of uh, these scientific and political facts that we looked at, it didn't lead people astray. What mattered was whether they were looking to the evidence. So I guess the, the risk is that a person might feel like there is a tension. Well, if I'm trusting my intuition or if I'm trusting the divine insight that I've been given, then I can't rely on facts. I can't look to the evidence. That's where the problem arises. Now, in these data, we were looking, we, we used several different studies, and in each study, we talked to hundreds of Americans who were a cross-section of the population. So these were people who looked like a typical, uh, a typical cross-section of Americans. Uh, and we found that there really didn't appear to be a general tendency for these two things to be in, con in conflict. That is, people who said, my intuition is important to me, weren't. They were not more likely to say that they, dis that, that they didn't pay attention to evidence. And so it's an interesting question. Perhaps for some communities that's different. Perhaps there are communities where their intuition would, would um, be valued above evidence. But it's not true in the population as a whole, at least not by the data that we have. So uh, just in, in wrapping up here, I have one more question. Matt Townsend always likes to end an interview by asking, what is the one thing that we can take away from this, from this interview, or what's the one thing that we can do today? So let me ask you that. What, what's something that we can do today to become better at questioning our gut reaction? So it's a great question and a really important one because this is an era where I have seen more and more uh, people saying that they just can't know what's true and, and they just, it, 
there's so much contradictory information out there, they're throwing up their hands and saying, I'm just going to go with what I want to believe because it's impossible to know what's true. If there's one thing you take away from this, it is that that is the last thing you should do. We should not give up on truth or on the idea that there is evidence out there that we can use to make judgments about the world. We live, we're very fortunate to live when we do. There is a great deal of information that we have accumulated through uh, considerable effort and time and energy and to simply disregard that evidence that we've collected and say well you know i can't i can't know what to believe so i'm just going to have to trust my instincts would be a mistake instead we can make the choice to say the evidence matters the facts matter i'm going to make sure that my claims are consistent with with the evidence as I understand it, the best available evidence out there. And sometimes you have to count on experts because we can't be experts on everything ourselves. Uh, sometimes you'll know for yourself. If you have seen something for yourself, if you know something is true, then you should speak up. You know, don't, don't stand by silently when someone online says something that you know is untrue. You don't need to be in conflict. You don't have to be threatening or angry. But you should speak openly and say, well, actually, you know, there's evidence that that's not true. And here it is. Share your evidence. It helps everyone to be better decision makers. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for your insight and uh, your ideas on how we can uh, be better at questioning our gut instinct. His name is Professor R. Kelly Garrett. He teaches communication at Ohio State University. He received his Ph.D. from the University of Michigan. His research interests include the study of online political communication, online news, and the ways citizens and activists use technologies to shape their engagement with political topics. And uh, his recent work focuses on how people's exposure to and perceptions of political information are related to their political beliefs. And again, uh, Professor Garrett, we really appreciate your time and insight here on The Matt Townsend Show. When we return, we'll continue this idea of the gut instinct. Uh, When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just had a wonderful interview with our guest, R. Kelly Garrett, who is a professor at Ohio State University, gave us some tips and pointers on how we can be better at questioning our gut instinct. I joked at the beginning of the show that maybe I should have listened to my gut instinct, which my gut literally was telling, well, not literally telling me, but my gut uh, was indicating to me that maybe I should have stayed at home this morning because, yeah, I'm struggling with something, but uh, I don't want to give you any of the gory details, even though it is close to Halloween. Cole loves gory details. It's true. He loves gory movies and scary movies of all kinds and shapes. And anyway, so some of the, just in summary, some of the points that Professor Garrett shared with us keeping an open mind, making sure that we do research. And uh, also, you know, he mentioned that listening to our gut instinct could be a good thing in certain circumstances. For instance, he shared the uh, the example of what if you come across a lion 
might be a good time to use your gut instinct instead of sitting there trying to analyze every scenario, you know, and weigh the facts and statistics. Fortunately, logic and statistics also lend you to believe that you should (laughs) run away from said lion. Maybe, yeah. Common logic, yeah, absolutely. So there are circumstances in which it might be a good idea to listen to that gut instinct. And it's interesting, too, because a gut instinct might be different for many people, or people might define it as different things. And I know that uh, not everybody is religious, and that's okay. But for some people that are religious, they might not call it a gut instinct. Maybe they'll call this feeling that they're getting that they shouldn't go down this alley, maybe they're calling that divine intervention, a message from on high that they should not be doing a certain thing. And that's okay, too. And we certainly should respect people that, that feel like they they have those inspirations, especially if they follow them, if it's if it's a good thing. Uh, I think an- as – so I'm a stats major in college okay. and I'm a very logical kind of person. So I think my gut is just naturally more logical than maybe someone else's. Um, even the times where I think that I'm making a, a knee-jerk reaction, it turns out that my subconscious had gone through a lot of the, the pros and cons without me having to actually weigh them out myself. Yeah. And, you know, just making simple decisions or um, decisions about – I mean I'm a young college guy, right? I have a lot of – decisions that are going to impact the rest of my life, whether it was come to come to college, which college to go to, what kind of career path to choose. Um, I never sat down and made a pros or cons list. Really? But the gut reactions that I thought were gut at the time proved to have a lot of logical backing to them. That's interesting because that seems that that kind of seems like the type of decision that maybe you would want to. Oh yeah, weigh it's, the there's, pros and there's cons. no rush to deciding a college major at all. Yeah. but it, for me, it just seemed to come together very well. And good for you too, because one other thing that that Professor Garrett mentioned was that we can't use our gut instinct all the time, and we can't be a hundred percent logical all the time, because you know I'm the type of person that is maybe a little too indecisive. And I'm doing better. I get better as I age. Uh, I come from a family of indecisive people. And that's not to say anything bad about them. It's just the truth. And we, it's always it's a kind of a joke in my family where if we're if somebody's good enough to make an itinerary for a family reunion, the joke is that, oh, we want to leave some time on the schedule to sit around and talk about, okay, well, what do you want to do next, you know? <laughs> So it's kind of a joke in my family, but there there is a danger of being either only uh, relying on your gut intuition or only being logical because, as Professor Garrett was saying, you are more susceptible to making mistakes that way, right? And the way that I kind of rationalize a lot of my gut reactions um, – for myself personally, is that a lot of the decisions I make just aren't important enough to to need to worry about. Indecision really stresses me out in other people and when I see it crop up in myself. And so the way I get rid of it is just telling myself, this probably just doesn't matter enough for me to be stressed about over not knowing what to do or stressed enough to try to lay out a pros and cons, what should I do? Yeah. So I just do things. Exactly. And that... Even when they turn out terrible, the terrible thing is way better for me than to have gone through the stress of deciding what to do. Yeah. I mean, things like, 
what movie should I watch right. Yeah, what, very I, easy. what outfit should I wear, you know? Not really uh, earth-shattering. So the decision that you make, even if it's not a great outcome, like you didn't like the movie or you didn't end up liking the outfit that you wore to work that day. Or even worse, someone else didn't like the outfit that you exactly. wore to work that day. It's not the end of the world. No. We're going to come back here with more fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. More gut reactions. More talks of movies. And uh, definitely no talking about food. I forbid it. Not today. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Well, before the break, I I, uh, mentioned that I was going to forbid anyone from mentioning food here on the show today. So naturally, we're going to talk about food right now, right? Exactly. Good. As luck would have it. Or as my gut would have it, our first MT News story has to do with food. Canadian police are asking for the public's help identifying a man accused of filling his pants with stolen meat. Was it Canadian bacon? (laughs) Or ham? The old put-the-meat-in-your-pants routine I see here. According to police, between 1 p.m. and 1.10 p.m. on Saturday... Uh, September 30th, a man entered a Toronto Costco, headed to the meat section, and put several packages of meat in the coveralls he was wearing. The man then left without paying for the meat in his pants. Now, let, maybe let's give him the benefit of a doubt. Maybe he forgot. he forgot to pay for the meat. Maybe he thought the chafing that was going on was... Payment enough? Or maybe he just thought it was an unrelated issue. Oh, yeah. You know? Understandable. Yeah, maybe he thought it was because he ran a mile the other day and that was what the chafing was from. But it was the meat. It was the meat, turns out. Police are releasing surveillance images to the public in the hope of identifying (laughs) the suspected meat thief. Just look for the man with the extreme front bum. (laughs) The man with these incredible bulges coming out all over the place in his pants. It's meat. You know what? That's too much trouble. Don't ask the public. Just stick the canine unit on him. They'll be all over him, right? Yeah, there was a story just the other day about a dog that failed out of um, canine school because oh, that's she wouldn't rat out the, the drug. Like, she she wouldn't sniff drugs. But any dog, I don't care which dog you are, they will sniff out meat. It takes specific training to sniff for drugs, but sniffing for meat, that's in, that's in their blood. That's like, you know, going from major league to... Triple A baseball or double A baseball. There's a little element of shame involved there. That poor dog. But it's just a happy dog. She's doing okay. All right. Well, hopefully she's not being uh, insulted by the other dogs out there. Anyway, if you see a guy walking around with meat in his pants, be sure to call the police in Toronto. We're going to take a break. When we return, we'll continue continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. We've got a lot of fun topics coming up when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Good morning. Welcome to hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. He'll return Monday. Until then, you're stuck with me and Cole and Terry South. But that's not a bad group of guys to be stuck with. And uh, Terry and I are super excited for the interview that's coming up here in just a few minutes because... We're going to be speaking with uh, Melissa Benaroya, who's going to be talking to us about the power of dads. I don't know if I'm super excited about it, though. You don't think she's going to have some insights, some tips to help you oh, I'm improve sure she will. Your, uh, your tenure as a dad? But she also just like loads the pressure on, also. Cause, I oh, because now she, that you've listened to the ideas, you right. have to step up and, well, and, and she's talking, utilize them. She's talking about how a father can influence how a daughter develops. But with the good also comes what the father can do to harm the development of the daughter. And that's usually where I end up, where you're not supposed to say these things. Don't say, hey, you're beautiful, because then that's putting too much, you know, too much uh, focus on looks. And you're not supposed to say you're the greatest, because, I mean, realistically, your child's probably not the greatest. You need to keep the <laughs> expectations low, but also keep them high and not, not damage them intellectually, but also encourage them. It's just, there's too much stress. Well, you know what they say, ignorance is bliss. So yeah. if you don't want more on your plate as a dad, maybe just don't listen i've read three articles this morning <laughs> that they're saying here's the 10 things you should say about your to your kids and 10 things you shouldn't say about your to your kids so you're trying to encourage them you're trying to just oh, so well, stressful one thing that what i'm sure everybody has learned is be very careful about what you say around your kids right. because they'll copy anything and everything you say but I, she uh the guest coming up melissa benaroya she has some good ideas on and it's Stuff that they found through research that actually impacts a, a, a daughter as she develops when it comes to her personal self-worth, when it comes to her future job and education and just success overall throughout her life based on interactions with the father. It's interesting. That's great. And, you know, I kid. Of course we want to listen to this. We want our kids to be successful. We want our kids to be happy. So be sure to join us for that here in just a minute. We've also got some more MT news here. Uh, including a school that's locked down after a student fight broke out, and then another fight broke out hmm. among a different group of people Wow! that we'll tell you about here in just a minute. We'll be speaking with Spencer and Jerem, I think Spencer and Jerem, of BYU Sports Nation. Give us a little recap, hopefully, of their trip to Vegas. And, uh, or a continued? I'm not sure if they're back yet. Oh, I think they said yesterday they were flying back. Oh, yesterday. really? Okay. Yeah. I was not sure. Yeah. I hear people out in this conference room that they meet in before the show starts. I'm not sure who's in there, but I don't know. We'll see. Oh, who are we kidding? I'm not going to ask them about Vegas. We're, there's one thing only I'm going to be talking to them about. Right. We'll find out what's on their show. But sure, that's secondary to the topic at hand today, which we'll share with you just here in a little bit. But first and foremost, let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry? On Thursday, President Trump gave himself perfect marks for the federal government's response <laughs> to the ongoing disaster in Puerto Rico. Of course. He goes, I'd say it was a 10, Trump told reporters during a meeting with the governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo Rosello. Um, according to the Washington Post, Trump called the rendering aid to Puerto Rico following Hurricane Maria probably the most difficult disaster response in history, which may have some truth to it, being sure. on an island and 
the logistical stresses of getting the uh, the supplies and relief there. He goes, it was in many ways worse than anything people have ever seen, the president said, adding it was worse than Katrina. Trump previously said Hurricane Maria wasn't a real catastrophe like Katrina, yeah. if you remember those comments. Um, Trump said the response, response in Puerto Rico had been hampered by damaged ports and roadways already in poor infrastructure, corruption on the island. Rosello was also uh, asked to give his assessment of the government's response to Maria, specifically by Trump, who he was sitting next to in this press conference, like inches away, and the Trump's yeah. just looking at him like, how did we do? And he goes, uh, what, uh, Trump said, did we do a great job? So his yes. question is, did yes, we, we do did. a great job? And so he goes, <laughs> you responded immediately, sir. That was the response. Wouldn't it have been great in school Which if we could have... Made our own grades up. Yeah. Look, Ma, I got an A. I got and a I'm 10. not talking about forging your report card and no. changing them. But if they just asked your opinion. Sure. And they just took it, yeah. <laughs> and so listen to the response there. Trump asks, did we do a great job? The governor responded, you responded immediately, sir. Huh. That didn't answer When Terry asks sure. for feedback on the show when he's staring right at me, I also tell him that... Yeah. He did fantastic you, today. You did, you did great. So I don't know. It was it was interesting to, to watch that interaction. But, I mean, there's been problems. It's getting better. Not as fast as they need to. Many people still without water and electricity, and there's still problems. But um, I don't know. What do you do? You keep I mean, working at it, right? Maybe the good news is the more weird things that Trump says about Puerto Rico, the more that we remember that Puerto Rico is still a problem. That's probably the bigger thing of why the governor went and had this meeting. Yeah. So now everyone oh, yeah, Puerto Rico. Yeah. And you do that. So mm. at least two potential candidates for U.S. attorney positions in New York have been personally interviewed by President Trump, including one person who, if nominated and confirmed, would have jurisdiction over Trump Tower in Manhattan. W- two wait, people what? familiar with the meeting said. Yeah. So really, he's interviewing these U.S. attorneys. Usually the president doesn't even talk to these people because they're law enforcement. Sure. And there's conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. But Trump's had two of them in his office and he's interviewing them personally as they're looking at these positions that he'll be over buildings that he owns and property that he owns. <laughs> That's so weird. It's unclear when Trump met with uh, Jeffrey Berman and Ed McNally. Berman is seen as a possible candidate for the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, which oversees the area where Trump Tower is. McNally for the Eastern District. White House Counsel Don McGahn has been tasked with leading the process of filling the U.S. Attorney posts and an administration f- official reports that Trump asked for regular updates on the Southern District position, which is Trump Tower. Uh, Trump also personally met with Leslie Liu, who, uh, when she was a candidate for U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, documents submitted to the Senate Judiciary Committee, Committee show, and she was later confirmed by the Senate. To be very blunt, these three jurisdictions, the Southern and Eastern Districts of New York and Washington, D.C., so right. those three jurisdictions will have authority to bring indictments over the ongoing special counsel investigation into Trump's campaign collusion with the Russians and potential obstruction of justice by the President of the United States. Senator Richard Blumenthal said in the interview for him to be interviewing candidates for that prosecutor who may in turn consider whether to bring indictments involving him and his administration seems to smack of political interference. Yeah. Just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. I'm sure there's no problem whatsoever there. No problem. The guy that used to be, I believe, the Southern District U.S. Attorney was a guy that uh, because if you remember when Trump took office, he he. He called that specific U.S. attorney and said, you will stay on. And he goes, all right. And then they, a few, like a few months, a month later, they fired every lead U.S. attorney across, which is a normal Sheesh. process, yeah. new administration. Mm-hmm. You bring in new people to for your agenda. That's sure. the idea. Yeah. 
that guy calls up and says, you guys told me I could stay. His, I think his name was Pete Barrera, I think. He goes, hmm. you could stay. And then he's like, no, 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 you're gone too. And he goes, but you, okay. So he's out. <laughs> and now that guy was interviewed on, I think I was watching CNN, and they said, so you were appointed during the Obama administration. He goes, yes. He goes, how many times did you meet with President Obama? And he goes, never. Because no other president would do this because of potential conflicts of interest. Yeah. They're going on with that. So we'll see where that goes. Um, so there were, uh, yesterday, uh, Senator McCain and several other senators unveiled new requirements for Facebook, Google uh, to disclose ad buyers. This goes with – because if, yeah. if you look at TV and radio, when political ads come out, they have there, there's some disclosure and there's public information that goes out of who's buying the ads – you know, at the end of it, it says, I, you know, that you, you'll either hear the candidate say, I endorse this message, yeah, right? Yeah. Or, or you'll hear like the group say, this paid for by yeah, uh-huh. whatever action committee type thing. You have to have disclosures that way. Not so much when it comes to Facebook and Google when you put out political ads that way. It's kind of unregulated completely. Ah, yes. So That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. They're coming out with some rules. They unveiled legislation aimed at forcing tech giants and social media companies to disclose the individuals and entities who buy advertisements on their platforms. Under the legislation, the threshold for disclosure would be $500 in ad buys on platforms such as Facebook and Google. The initial threshold when the bill was first discussed was $10,000. So they dropped that to $500 from 10000 Just wow. you know, Let's make sure we get most of it. While TV and radio ads have to be filed, that's not true for online advertisements. Uh, the press conference said if a candidate or a cause buy an ad for TV, the same rule should apply if it's on Facebook. The bill represents the first legislative effort in response to uh, Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. So This ad paid for by Russians for Donald Trump for president. There you go. So they're trying to figure out how to regulate that one specific type of ad on social media. Will that solve the problem? No, because it's huge. No. But yeah. It's something. I don't even know if this is a good approach. But they're going to have meetings and discuss this stuff. Finally, um, are you ready for Christmas? Um, well, if the stores are kind of telling me I need to be. You should be, yes. According <laughs> to this, the Hallmark Channel, their around-the-clock Christmas programming. When do you think they're going to start that? Ooh, November 1st. Next week. What? Despite the fact that Halloween hasn't even happened yet, Hallmark airs its first of its 34 new Christmas movies. So I can start watching my Rob Lowe and Melissa Joan Hart TV movies? Well, those will be up there, too, because they have to fill the 24 hours. But they have 34 new movies that they're going to show between October 28th and Christmas Day. Are they taking the Netflix approach? I have no idea. They're just rolling on out with new content. Because if you go go look, it's just wall-to-wall Christmas. And, I mean, my son wanted a bunch of Christmas movies to watch for some reason he was in that spirit whereas i'm like it's not even the day yet i don't you know Look. so you go through and i record all these cartoons and he's watching christmas cartoons constantly and stuff so it says um feel good titles this is the so october 28th will be marry me at christmas yes. other feel good titles coming up this season include the sweetest christmas a joyous christmas christmas and evergreen christmas at holly lodge a bramble house christmas you know, that kind of stuff. There's going to be a lot of Christmas. If you can't wait till October 28th, Hallmark Channel I Countdown. Can't wait. They have a Christmas preview show. Oh, my goodness. 64 days before Christmas, October 22nd, they See, will air their preview show. Cole, you and I had talked about the, the idea the of challenging each other to do certain things for uh, screen cleaning. Yes. I think maybe I'm going to challenge you. It's not official, but maybe I'll challenge you to watch every one of these new Hallmark 
movies. I accept. Really? He said it on the air. He's over there like, He's, yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to do that anyway. <laughs> yeah. In all seriousness, these Hallmark movies, despite without without exception all being terrible, I generally watch most of them. Because really, wow. there is nothing that puts me in a truer Christmas spirit and thinking about just going to my grandma's house over the river through some actual woods yeah. back home. But do you need it before Thanksgiving? So I will start watching Christmas movies approximately Thanksgiving night okay. after the football games end. I'll watch my first Christmas movie, listen right. to some so Christmas music. I get it. It's there's, a hard deadline for me there. There's not a lot of money in Thanksgiving, right? Which is why, you know, there aren't very many Thanksgiving movies, or if there are, they're not really that uh, prominent. But there's Christmas movies that start in Thanksgiving. That's true. Why do we have to go even before Halloween? Well, do we have to ignore that Halloween is a thing? It's the same reason as why you go to the store right now and like all the seasonal items, it's like this fight between Halloween and things and, uh, and Christmas right it's now. It's a big fight. And as you get close, you, if you, I've done this before. If you try to get candy on Halloween, they've already flipped the aisle to Christmas. It's crazy. The yeah. 31st of October, all the candy's gone and it's Christmas time at all the grocery stores. That's why you go the day after Halloween and get all the discount candy. Well, there's that. Yeah. As if you didn't have enough by pilfering your children's pumpkins. So, yeah, I, I was not happy with that. I, I tend to wait till more like, say, the Christmas Eve sort of range before Christmas is, you know, something I start to, like, embrace. Yeah. I just kind of wait. Do you have some sort of a candy tax set up in your house? No, I just take what I want. Really? I'm dad. What's yeah. he going to do? No, but it's not like... <laughs> he yeah, goes, He goes, no, uh, and I'm like... You're not going to eat these Twix. There are two of these Twix, so uh, one oh, for yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. And then another for me. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The right and the left Twix. They're both for you, Cole. Anyway, yeah, so I guess forget that Halloween uh, is even going to happen. Just skip Halloween, go straight to Christmas. You better start now. I mean, if you you basically See, have to watch one of those movies every day from now until Christmas. And I have, I have seen Halloween trees. Have you seen these before? No. People, I've, I see them as I, you, if there's apartment buildings as I'm driving to work and you get to work here and there's some like dorm type situations around. You see in the windows, people have a tree up. They cover it in orange lights. It's their excuse. And then they're probably going to have some sort of Thanksgiving sort of tree decoration they can put up. I don't know what Thanksgiving tree lights look like. Do they have brown lights? I mean, it's, that's sort of Thanksgiving color, right? Sort it's a, probably because maybe they're either value-minded or they're just – they don't want to put in that much work. Or, they, or it's like, huge, if, I, if I put it up now, I can just relax all through Christmas because we just have to change out some they're lights. They're in denial about their addiction to Christmas and so they have to put up a <laughs> Halloween tree. And They could know. just be huge Ray Bradbury fans. They could be. There you go, know. the Halloween tree. See, I'm very value-minded, so I could understand it from a value perspective of, I don't want to get just 30 days out of this Christmas tree. How about mm. uh, 90 days? Oh, go to my hometown in central Pennsylvania. People leave their just icicle lights up <laughs> well, yeah. all year long, there's 365 the, days. That's value. There's that problem. You don't need a porch light when you have these tiny little bulbs. Yeah. So either those people are very festive... Or, you know, they just never get around to taking those Christmas lights that are still up in July. Anyway, as promised, we do have a bit of empty news that we said we wanted to talk about. So 
I've never heard of a school shutting down. I've heard, we, lately, we've been talking about schools being shut down for mysterious odors and mm-hmm. substances. You know, typically it's somebody brought a knife to school or a gun to school or somebody wore a mask, speaking of Halloween costumes. But authorities say a New York high school had to be placed on lockdown after a fight broke out among students and another brawl erupted when their parents arrived. Police tell the... Ooh, how do you say this one? Poughkeepsie? Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie? Poughkeepsie. Almost sounds like it. the mayor of... Moving on. It's in it, New York. Is that our mayor or governor? No, no, no. Our, our governor is... Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Mayor Poughkeepsie, Pesco- I think it is. Uh, journal, let's see. The Police tell the uh, Poughkeepsie Journal... Did I get it right? The, no, the local okay. newspaper. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that at least 10 officers were sent to such and such high school just before noon Tuesday after a fight broke out among students. Police say the students' parents later arrived and got into a fight as well. Hmm. School district officials say an external threat required administrators to put the high school under a shelter-in-place warning until the threat was contained. The... Uh, the administrators themselves then, no, they didn't get into a fight either. Police Sergeant George Camacho says he doesn't have details of the two fights or information on whether charges were filed. Wow. Hmm. Wow. Parents, man. Yeah. You hear about that occasionally where just the parents show up and they're, they're trying to fix it, but you get into that thing like, what'd you do to my kid? And then it just turns into a brawl. And it's, it's crazy. It's either that cause... or like, you know, Black Friday sales. It's kind of the same sort of mentality. I'm going to fight you for that flat screen. I'm like, really? There's a lot right. of rage, but usually these days you would think uh, adult rage would come out in the form of, you know, road rage or I'm going to post this nasty post yeah. on social media. But, uh, yeah, you don't see that as much. I've never heard of something like this happening. What I've seen – I mean, but this – it's kind of a similar topic. You go talk to a teacher, like parent-teacher conferences. And I had a – my son came home first couple of days of school. I go, how's school going? He goes, I don't like my teacher. I want, a new, I want a new class. Why? Well, the teacher yelled at us. What'd she yell at you for? Well, we were all talking. Well, stop talking. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well – when I brought that up to her, because I thought it was kind of a funny comment he made, and then as we had the discussion, he's now like, the class is great, loves the teacher, all that's great. But the first couple days, and she was like, oh, I'm so sorry, we, you know, you have 20, you have all these kids in the class, How do you? and I go, no, 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 no criticism. Yeah. Perfectly fine. Yell away. <laughs> you know, kids, you know. But, but she was like gun shy, like I was coming in to criticize her for her teaching, and I'm like, no, great, great job. Get you, keep it going, you know, whatever. But it was just this this idea that she's just on on the defense, waiting for a parent to come in and be irate over something their kid said. And I'm looking at it like my kid's six. I'm not really probably getting most of the story here. I'm getting whatever he wants to tell me. Oh yeah, right. So if you go off a six year old's information, you're not going to have you know. So I always look at it that way. But she was so on edge, like maybe she's dealt with parents in the past where. <laughs> She had to defend herself, and they're all you know defending their kid instead of maybe listening to what the teacher had to say. Yeah. So I don't know. I do have a daughter that usually can be relied on to tell the truth in any situation. However, she's not immune from that tactic that kids use and probably many adults use as well of, I'm going to tell a portion of the truth and leave out the, the other portion of the truth that puts me in a not-so-favorable light. Right. Nobody wants to look bad. They just want other people to look bad. Anyway, 
Parents don't fight with other parents. A little lesson here on the Matt Townsend Show. As we go to a quick break, when we return, we're going to be speaking with a woman who can probably have quite a bit of advice for these parents that are fighting. We're going to be speaking to a guest that's going to be talking to us about the power of dads and why dads need to invest in their parenting. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we try to do our best here on the Matt Townsend Show to help parents learn how to parent. And I really appreciate that our next guest is on the show today because I'm constantly thinking of ways to improve as a father and not just, you know, trying to come up with creative ways to entertain my kids and get them to like me more. I think we get so hung up on our kids wanting to uh, or wanting we us wanting our kids to like us so much that we sometimes forget that you know there are other areas in their lives that we can have an impact and so Melissa Benaroya is here today to talk to us about the huge impacts that we can have on our children's lives specifically the huge impact that fathers can have on their lives Melissa Benaroya is a parent coach. She's a speaker and author in the Seattle area, and she wrote an article titled The Power of Dads, Why Dads Need to Invest in Their Parenting. Melissa, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's great to be here. I'm so excited that you're from Seattle. We were just talking about during the break all the fun names that come out of the state of Washington, like Snoqualmie. I lived in Seattle for about five years, and so it'll always hold a special place in my heart. Ah, oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a, it's a great city to live in, and it's really a fantastic place to raise children. And in fact, that is where I was living. My, my wife and I were living when we had our first child. And, uh, you know, just a little tiny 1,100-square-foot house, and we were as happy as can be. We couldn't fit in that house anymore. But uh, I'm so excited you're on the show because, as I mentioned, I'm I'm always trying to improve as a dad. And it's not always just about getting your kids to like you, but there are ways in which we can have a profound impact on our on our children's lives, and we need to— we need to do what we can to improve that. So I'm glad you're here, and I'm hoping that uh, you can share with us a little bit about some of the research that you've conducted and uh, what areas, the areas in which dad, uh, dads can have these profound impacts on their daughters. Sure, absolutely. Um, so actually, the research that I shared in that article, I actually compiled. Uh, it wasn't my personal research because there is a lot of information out there. So as a parent educator, I try to siphon, as you know, as a parent, there is tons of information and research. Oh, yeah. So I try to find the most relevant information to share with parents. So um, in talking about dads, dads are so important to children's social, emotional, and physical health. And there's definitely been a shift in their roles within the family over the last 10, 20 years. Um, I know in Seattle here, we've seen a lot more stay-at-home dads 
which yeah. you probably wouldn't see 10, 15 years ago. So they're definitely taking a more significant role in the raising of their children, not just going out and making the money, but actually in the day-to-day raising their kids. And I focus a little more on the relationship between father and daughter because I obviously um, had that relationship with my father. And men have a huge impact on their daughter's lives. Um, just even the, a girl's ability to manage stress is affected by the quality of her relationship with her dad. And they've actually done research where they look at cortisol levels. And when there was a, a warm relationship and high, higher levels were, no, that's opposite. When there's a warm relationship, there's lower levels of cortisol, which is kind of like a stress hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, and when there are higher cortisol levels, there was usually a strain on the relationship. So definitely in, in kind of that venue, dads have a big impact. They also have the ability just through having a warm relationship with their daughter to increase coping mechanisms. So when there is stress, girls and women that have or have had a, a close relationship with their, cha- their father um, have better ability to manage those situations. There's just so much research. So, yeah. um, so just thinking about stress, girls have a greater ability to manage it when that relationship has been nurtured um, because they're able to process their cognition um, is more accessible to manage problems, manage problems with peers, within their family, um, and are able to problem solve and focus on the elements of the problem, the problem that are uncontrollable or unpredictable. Yeah. You know, and this is interesting. Sometimes I feel like maybe I have high levels of cortisol and I'm causing my daughters <laughs> to have high levels of cortisol. And I, I feel like I have a great relationship with my daughters. But And I don't want this to turn into some kind of a confessional, but it seems like whenever I... I'm trying to get my girls to do something. Part of it stems from the fact that maybe they're not listening the first time I'm asking them to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always I feel like I'm always counting down or I'm always saying, oh, yeah. oh we've we've got to hurry. And so sometimes the response that I'll get from my daughters is, OK, OK, I'll do it. And I'm, I wonder if I'm causing them to be stressed out when I'm constantly placing on them some kind of a time limit or this idea that, oh, we have to do it now. We're in this huge hurry when in actuality, I just want them to do what I ask them to do. <laughs> right. Completely. Well, I, it's interesting that you say that, Jeff, because our brains, the human brain is wired for connection and we connect through shared emotions and shared experiences as humans mm. for social animals and in our brains we have these things called mirror neurons and mirror neurons um, are these kind of like reflective neurons where we emulate what we are seeing in one another so when you are getting frustrated and angry and you're kind of escalating these mirror neurons are firing off and your daughters are having a reflected experience. That's why commercials, you know, the Pepsi commercials and you see this icy cold beverage and all of a sudden you're feeling thirsty <laughs> or right. They're playing on these mirror neurons or maybe I don't know if you've had the experience 
where somebody yawns and then all of a sudden you feel the need to yawn. Have you oh, ever yeah. had that experience? Oh, most of the time, yeah. all you have to do is say the word yawn and I'm yawning. Right. Yeah. Those <laughs> are your mirror neurons. Those are mirror neurons firing off. And I think this is the, just this awareness and knowing this can be so powerful for parents because you can't make your child calm down and regulate themselves, but you can influence them through your own behavior and your own self-soothing. And as adults, we've had a lot more practice in self-soothing than our kids have, right? Yeah. So we know to take that deep breath or we know to say like, hey, you know what? I need to step out of the room and I'll be right back to regulate ourselves. Because if we are calm, then our child is going to be calm in response. That makes so much sense because it doesn't even have to be in an interaction with your child. I've noticed, too, that if if my wife and I are stressed out about something and they're watching us have some sort of a conversation, they know when their parents don't necessarily have it all together, when things are not uh, as under control as you'd like them to be. Right, right, yeah. And they probably then respond in erratic ways or elevate other um, emotional responses just because they're having that shared experience with you because we connect through shared experiences and shared emotions. So emotions are contagious. And that's kind of like how I like to embody this idea that your emotions are contagious. So if you want your kid to calm down, you better focus on calming yourself first. And you probably have the experience where you know, your kid flips out about something that, like, is totally rational and stupid, and all of a sudden you're, like, pissed off. Right? Yeah. And it, it's just this mirror neuron dynamic happening. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for that. I, I'm looking at this article that you've put together here and the the, uh, the data that you've collected. And so the first one you talked about is dealing with stress. Go go through the other right. few that you have here. and. Uh, sure. And keep helping me because I'm loving it. I'm eating it all up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So another area that um, fathers influence in their daughter's life is their level of self-esteem and their body image. So the way a girl or a woman views herself and her body can be predicted by the relationship of between father and daughter. So if fathers are present and loving, girls are more likely to view themselves in a positive light. Um, So it's important that dads show this unconditional love and support for the daughters because that increases the probability of them having a more positive body image. Yeah. The The downside is, and, you know, people get caught up in this all the time, when dads focus on their daughter's looks or their daughter's talents, like, oh, you're so pretty, or you're the best gymnast, then girls tend to have a higher incidence of negative body image. So just being mindful about the feedback that you're giving your daughter, because of course you think your daughter's like the cutest, most beautiful girl in the world, right? Yeah. But if those are the messages she's hearing, then she gets focused on her body and tends to have a lower negative body image. So being super aware of that feedback makes a big difference. Melissa, can we, I mean, can we just make like little adjustments in the way that we talk to our daughters that maybe, maybe it's all about the wording because I'll admit, I, I, I was feeling proud of myself that I, you know, tell my daughters so much 
that they're beautiful and I'm, that they, they did this right and all that. But maybe that's not necessarily the best way to do it or to do it so often. It, can we just make a changing in the wording? Like, I, uh, it was it was great when you did this, or I'm so proud of you when you did that. What, yeah. How can we change the wording so that maybe we can continue doing what we're doing, but just make it even totally. better? Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you asked, and we could probably spend an entire hour talking about absolutely this, about the negative effects of using praise. <laughs> and I think here's a few little tweaks I'll give you really quick. Number one, just focus on the facts, because when we say great or wonderful or talented, there is judgment there. They are not that they're processing. I'm feeling judged, but there is judgment there. So when we take out, wow, you know, you're so great and you're, you know, you got first place and we focus on, wow, you worked really hard, right? We're focusing on just some of the facts. We eliminate that judgment because when we're not saying good job, the opposite of that is bad job. And we tend to then create praise junkies and they're looking for that, right? And they are now basing whether or not they're smart enough, talented enough, cute enough, athletic and laugh based on what other people are saying about them. And that is a danger zone for young kids because we don't want them to determine their self-worth based on what other people say. But when they're fed a diet of praise, that is what tends to then lead to girls, especially um, determining their own self-worth then obviously affects their self-image and their self-esteem and all of that. So just say what you see. Wow, you jumped so high in the air that time. Or, wow, you got 100% on the test. How does that feel? So helping your child connect back to how they feel about it. It's not about how you feel about it. That's important. What's important is how they feel about it. So that's one thing. I'll give you one more. Okay. And I think this is the this is kind of the power tool of parenting. And it's kind of silly, but it's asking questions. So just say what you see or ask a question. How do you think you got that high that time? Or what did you do to get such a great grade on the te- or great um, on that test? So asking a question. Why did you choose to use those colors in that painting? Or how did you draw it like that? So asking them draws attention to the things that they're doing. It shows that you're interested and engaged. And it allows them to determine whether or not it's a good job or a bad job. And and you may have mentioned this before, or maybe I was talking to somebody before we started this interview, <laughs> that um, that... When our child draws, like, a really beautiful picture and we say, oh, my God, that's such a beautiful picture, that's not only a judgment, it reduces their likelihood to take risks and do something different. So maybe your daughter drew a flower. She's going to continue to draw that same flower because she knows that's what gets her praise. She's less likely to try something else because of that fear that, you may not think it's as good. And for really, really young kids, that praise is interpreted as love, right? Like, oh, yeah. mommy loves me when I do this good, which on the flip side is mommy doesn't like me when I mess up. Right? Oh. So I, could, I could go on and on. This is I blowing my mind. This is, this is fantastic. <laughs> I think, like you said, it's just making small tweaks. 
So it's just turning from praise to acknowledgement. Okay. So it's just that little tweak of saying what you saw or asking some questions. Okay. I know that's not, that was not the purpose of our interview, but (laughs) I wanted to just give you a few little tips on how we encourage our kids. Yeah. So here's, here's a really important question then, because we want, we want our daughters to feel beautiful. We want them to know that we love them and that they can feel safe. So what do you do when your daughter has an issue with body image or self-esteem? Yeah, well, um, if you've gotten to that point, I think it's just first assessing what feedback you've been giving. And I want to just note that this isn't to say that, like, you get rid of every single, like, ounce of praise. Yeah. It's just being mindful of how much you're feeding them because I like and praise the candy. It's nice to have every once in a while, but encouragement or acknowledgement should be a staple in their diet. So, you know, I think just being mindful that daughters that feel a strong emotional connection to their fathers are actually less likely to be depressed or have an eating disorder such as bulimia or anorexia. So your comments, your feedback are going to affect how she feels about herself, about her body. And we see girls as young as second and third grade limiting their food consumption because of body image. Oh, that's horrible. I know. I know. And you know what? Quite honestly, these are coming from parents that have all good intentions and are loving. They're absolutely loving, but just don't have that awareness of how powerful their praise is and the effect it has on their child. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so now the next area uh, I'm hoping we can talk about here is this academic performance and professional success. Yes, yes. So once again, dads have a huge impact here. So when there's a positive, warm, um, connected relationship between girls and their dads, um, there is a profound effect on their success in school and in their future careers. And there was a study done through a U.S. census that found that girls who have a warm relationship with their fathers were 43% more likely to earn A's and 33% less likely than other children to repeat a grade. So there are statistics supporting this. They also found that women um, who have that close relationship with their father are more likely to follow in their father's professional footsteps in their, you know, 30s compared to only about 6% back in the early 1900s. So um, it went from 6% in the 1900s to, you know, in the 2000s being closer to 20%. So what they found is that dads are you know, more connected to their daughters, and they're they're more involved in mentoring them and investing in their daughters' futures as well as just the relationship. So they're they're more involved in their school lives and their academic and their careers overall, uh, more now than ever before. Excellent. And then speaking of relationships, you've got also on here healthy relationships in adulthood with men. Yes, absolutely. And you know what I um. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, so I'm a therapist, but when I went through graduate school, I did my entire thesis on this topic. Wow. Because 
Yeah, especially because, you know, we've got this whole Me Too movement and this awareness of how men and women treat each other um, and the way dads interact with their child, whether they're in, whether they invest in their relationship with their daughter, whether they um, feel connected to their daughter, what they found is when they make these investments, they have a healthier, happier, longer lasting relationship with men in adulthood. So the, the interaction, the relationship that you have with your daughter right now, I can't remember. Did you tell me how old your daughter is? I have a five-year-old daughter and a three-year-old daughter. Okay. Oh, you've got little itty bitties. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, what's crazy is with a three and a five-year-old, you are now setting the foundation for healthy relationships in their adult life because they're going to have stronger communication skills and they're also going to have healthier intimate relationships with men. So um, not just, you know, sexual, but just the day-to-day relationships of being able to communicate and get along and enjoy being in a relationship. So feeling emotionally close to their father is really, really important because on the other flip side of it, the research has shown that girls who didn't feel emotionally close to their fathers tended to engage more in frequent sexual activity in their adolescence. And what they believe to be the reason for this is that these girls are trying to fill an emotional void that was created by a lack of closeness and affection with their father. So, dad, you've got your work cut out for you. Uh, but yeah. I, you know, I think, I think dads many times, and, you know, I, I'm not going to stereotype Uh, But just like in general, think, you know, I'm going to leave the raising of the children to the women. They have this perception they're more nurturing. And that's not necessarily the case. It is very important for dads to be involved in every aspect of their daughter's life because it has a profound effect on their physical, mental and social well-being. So um, I'm thrilled that I'm seeing more and more dads in the classes I'm taking in the families that I work with in my private practice, I don't just have moms coming in. I have got moms and dads. In some cases, which I think is amazing, I have dads leading the process in getting support and parenting. Mm. And when I say support and parenting, I'm not saying, like, there's anything wrong with the child. The families that I work with are parents that have children that are, have developmentally appropriate behaviors. They're the crazy things that your kids do, like you mentioned, like not listening or doing what you ask them to or saying no, right? All of those things that just get really frustrating and kind of zap your energy. Those are the things that I work with um, with parents is just kind of the day-to-day. How do we create relationships with our kids based on mutual trust and respect? And we can do that by being both kind and firm, Right. So we can be very loving, but have very clear limits and boundaries at the same time. Well, Melissa, I'm so grateful for your time here on the show today. You've made me think twice about what I'm going to say to my daughters when I go home today. And uh, you've also put the pressure on me a little bit, which is good. It's exactly what I asked for. And really one of the perks, one of the many perks of working on the Matt Townsend Show is that we get to speak to wonderful people like Melissa Benaroya, who just help us 
with insight and with tips and ideas on how we can improve our lives and our relationships with our families and friends. So her name is Melissa Benaroya. You can find out more about her on melissabenaroya.com. And check out this article this that she put together, The Power of Dads, Why Dads Need to Invest in Their Parenting. Again, Melissa, we appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show. When we, retu- when we return, we'll do some quick MT news, and then uh, we'll be coming back with... A little mind blower from McKenna Baus. McKenna Baus is in the house when we return. You know, we've all heard the excuse of why we didn't complete our homework. My dog ate my homework. Cole, what's a favorite excuse of yours that you've heard or that you've given? Uh, Oops, I forgot. Oops, I forgot. Well, one man is uh, blaming his mistake on an otherworldly being. Classic. What? Aliens made me do it. Is the motive investigators say a Sheboygan, a Sheboygan man offered after allegedly vandalizing and then trying to burn down a home multiple times? The man told police he was struck by an alien virus, according to a criminal complaint. The homeowner said they have no idea who the man is and said after nearly a month of being targeted, they're glad he's been caught. From graffiti to a broken window and a charred back porch, the family renovating the home said for a month, someone has been damaging their property. Aliens made me do it. Wasn't that an episode of The X-Files? Yes. Although on the X-Files, it was probably true, right? Exactly. If you believe. (laughs) If you believe. And I want to believe. The truth is out out there. there. Which I know, and I think I've seen one episode of the X-Files. Do I need to go back and watch that? Well, there's 12 seasons plus like two half seasons now, and you got a lot of catching up to do, Jeff. So don't bother. But at least you've seen this episode because it's real. What was that, Terry? Two movies? Okay, I have seen both of the movies. Both highly enjoyable to me. There you go. All right. Speaking of otherworldly beings, oh, how horrible is that? McKenna Baus, who is from this world, when we come back, is going to blow our minds because McKenna McKenna Baus is in the house. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Give it up now for the House of Bows. Welcome to her house. She is Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We've got McKenna Bows in the house for another mind blower. And uh, real quick, though, McKenna, you, speaking of otherworldly beings, you said that you took a class devoted to aliens, right? I did, yeah, here at BYU. Was it taught by an alien? Uh, no, just, you know, two <laughs> professors. But interpret that as you will. <laughs> okay. You're not here to talk to us about aliens, though, today. What is it that you want to blow our minds about today? So today I'm here to blow our minds a little bit about who we think we are, 
versus what our DNA says about us. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people, I've been hearing a lot of people sending or doing the DNA tests and being really surprised at the results. Yeah, it's definitely something that's sort of very trendy right now, and I think it's particularly cool. Um, I haven't gotten one of those tests done. It's definitely on my bucket list. Okay. Um, But one of the big things that people like to find out from those tests is sort of where we are from, you know, country-wise. Yeah, and. It definitely can show us. It can show us sort of where our DNA might have come from. But we shouldn't equate that really with race and stuff because a lot of times, you know, we think of race as white, black, Asian, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Right. And what's really interesting is DNA is proving that those sort of groupings that we've created are really, really arbitrary. Huh. Yeah. So I think so. Yeah. It's it's really interesting because I think um, a lot of the studies that are coming out is showing that we really are just one human race. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, if, you know, you were to, I think most people would assume if you were to take people who appear white and people who appear black and people who appear Asian, you were to compare their genomes, the people who look more similar to each other are going to be closer genetically. Right, right. And that's not the case. That's so interesting. It's really interesting. So, for example, if you were to take somebody from Ethiopia, like who's ethnically Ethiopian Mm -hmm. and somebody who's ethnically Sudanese, both, you know, black from Africa and compare their genomes, they're more likely to be more genetically different from each other than they are with any other person in the world. That is crazy. Yeah. And so it just goes to show that so many of these, you know, names that we give these groupings for ourselves for different races are sociological more than anything else. Yeah. And it has very little to do with our genetics. So it's more man-made, these ideas that we form. Yeah. So really... If you were to take one of those genetic tests, we will probably be surprised at the results, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, we all are a lot – there's just a lot to us that we don't quite understand yet. And we're all – you know, we're all related when it comes down to it. Yeah, we're all brothers and sisters. Well, you know, as we just shared, a wise man once said, the truth is out there. That it is. <laughs> all right. The human race, an alien race. Well, we're not all the same, but uh, <laughs> the human race, we are all the same, right? Maybe get one of those tests taken. I, I, This kind of sparked my interest. I think I might want to do that. I've had some friends do it, and they've been shocked at the results. And it's on your bucket list, so you better check that one off here pretty soon. McKenna Bowles, thank you so much for blowing our minds. She's in the house. And she's about to leave the house because we've got to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we will be on the air with Screen Cleaning, our 20th episode. But before that, we got to get to the BBC News here on The Matt Townsend Show. Rubber Ducky, you're the one. You make shower time so much fun. Rubber Ducky, I'm terribly fond of you. (laughs) Oh, oh, Cole. Oh, it's just you. Come on, Jeff, get a move on. The show's starting. What? 
What are you talking about? What show? You know, Screen Cleaning's 20th episode doing the special Alfred Hitchcock themed one. Oh, oh you're right, right. Okay, let me uh, let me just grab a towel and I'll be right out. Well, haven't you heard, Jeff? There are no clean towels. <laughs> my nightmare getting out of the shower and there's no towel or you know trying to go to the bathroom and there's no toilet paper whoo that was scary it's a real life horror movie <laughs> well cole just as you tease we're doing our 20th episode here of screen cleaning last time we on our 10th show we did the we highlighted the career of christopher, christopher nolan. nolan right today we're going to be highlighting the career of alfred hitchcock it's almost like we planned these things yes and when we return we're going to be speaking with the vyu professor i sat down with her and we had a wonderful interview we're going to share some of our favorite alfred hitchcock films and kind of what alfred hitchcock would look like as a filmmaker if he were still alive that's straight ahead here on screen cleaning It's time for a 90-second movie review for the film Happy Death Day on BYU Radio. Happy Death Day features the premise of repeating a day over and over again, like Groundhog Day. This time, the main character, Tree Geldman, played by Jessica Roth, has to solve her own murder. When she gets killed, she wakes up again, at the same time, on the same day. So it's actually more like Edge of Tomorrow. Well, yes, this premise is getting old, but there have been some good movies made with it. Unfortunately, now they all seem to be teen horror films. And that's what I was expecting going into this film, but I got something a little better out of it. There was more comedy in the script than I expected. Instead of a heavy-handed killer film, this was more of a solve-the-crime story, which was a little refreshing. There are some obvious jump scares and the crazy background music telling you to watch out, but it was just different enough to be a little entertaining. This film was fun at times, but again, only at times. The filmmakers tried to overcome the repetitive nature of the plot with little tricks, but it still felt too repetitive. It did seem right, though, that the main character would freak out at some point just from having to repeat everything. This film earns its PG-13 rating from the violence that is almost ever-present and the intensity of some of the scenes. There is also some drug use as well as drinking and smoking. Profanity is used many times in the film as well as innuendo. A woman is partially nude, but only her back is seen. Happy Death Day is getting a C-plus grade from me. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean O'Neill. This has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. You know, each 10th show, we highlight the career of filmmakers, actors, musicians. And the last time we discussed Christopher Nolan, we had a great discussion. We broke down some of his films. Cole and I had very different opinions on uh, his best films. We've selected Alfred Hitchcock this time as the filmmaker that we want to highlight. And many people consider him to be the master of suspense. And today we have Professor Kimball Jensen, a professor of media arts at a Brigham Young at Brigham Young University, and uh, she's also interested in critical race theory, ethnic studies, digital media. I thought this was interesting. She's presented research on cosplay and received the James Weaver Graduate Essay Prize for her article on Harry Potter fandom. Kimball, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So I mentioned in the intro that a lot of people consider him to be the master of suspense. And aside from the fact that he did such a great job of leaving so much to the imagination, why else do you think that's an appropriate title for Alfred Hitchcock? Well, I think just the topics that he delved in and a lot of other filmmakers. I mean, there's horror and mystery and thriller, and and he's making films at a time where there's film noir, um, sort of in the post-World War II era, where there's a lot of interest in things like... uh, moral ambiguity, like who's a hero and who's a villain. Right. And then yeah. there's also this um this interest in things like psychology and the unconscious and uh, you know, are we responsible for our actions? Um, what are the things that are uh making us do things or what kind of sort of raw emotional uh connections can we tap into um in sort of this new and interesting World, this post-World War II world where there's a lot of sort of conventions that were shattered by, you know, years of war and yeah. all that kind of stuff. I think you've touched upon something that really highlights the fact that he's not just considered the master of suspense, but he was a master filmmaker because his films never seemed to be just one thing. You know, it never seemed to be just a scary movie or a suspenseful movie. There's so much emotion, so much humanity in his films that, you know, his films had the ability to bring out a a myriad of emotions from his viewers. And that takes talent. Yeah. So Hitchcock is, yeah, not just the master of suspense or, or, or whatever you want to call him, but he is a master filmmaker. And one, that's because Hitchcock was very conscious of his film practice, if you will. He, he was very in tune with, okay, in filmmaking, what are the things that you do to be a good filmmaker? How does film create meaning when you watch it? And Hitchcock has these great interviews, and he because he had such a long career and because um, people liked him so much, he has a lot of interviews where he talks about, you know, this is how film works, right? Yeah. When I, when I cut to different scenes and I put things together, the images coming together create these meanings. Um, that we're going to use in film. Um, And the other idea that uh, Hitchcock really got this huge boost in his reputation when all these uh, very uh, famous French critics um, became very interested in him. him. And so especially a famous uh, French filmmaker, Francois Truffaut, did this whole series of interviews with Hitchcock because Hitchcock was one of his favorites. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're trying to go back and reclaim this idea that filmmaking is an art. Right. Yeah. As a filmmaker, you can be an artist and you can have a style. Right. And that's kind of this um, idea that we understand very naturally today because it's so common that we understand that filmmakers are artists when that wasn't really a big thing before then. So why is it that you think we're still talking about Alfred Hitchcock today? Because you mentioned, that, you know, there was that recent uh, documentary Hitchcock uh, Truffaut, I think, was the name of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one that, if it's not out already, it's coming out, that's dedicated entirely to the shower scene (laughs) of the film Psycho. So clearly, he's still relevant today. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, just he's a very skilled and masterful filmmaker. Mm -hmm. He's purposeful in what he does. He understands the filmmaking process, and he's able to put things together in a way that connect with individuals both because the stories are compelling, the characters are compelling, and just the visuals of his films are very, very well composed as if you're a painter, right, composing a painting. Uh, Hitchcock treated film in the same way. 
Um, and Hitchcock was very um, well known for being very meticulous in his planning as well. So Hitchcock would sit down and storyboard out and plan things out very meticulously. And he had a very clear vision and very clear expectations of what he wanted, which made him a great filmmaker, made him demanding as a director. And he was kind of a director-producer as well. He took on a lot yeah. of other sort of roles besides just you know working with his actors. He was very careful, very detail-oriented from picking out the clothes for a lot of his uh, female stars, Yeah, um, being very specific about the colors um, and the camera angles and all these different things. And there's some sort of film legend, I don't know if that's what you want to call it, but the idea that Hitchcock knew that working with studios, um, the studios were kind of famous for uh, re-editing or cutting down or mm-hmm. trying to f- make you do things that were more in the interest of the studio rather than the director. Sure. And so Hitchcock was uh, known for being very meticulous because, one, he had a very clear vision, but also people have said that he was very meticulous because he wanted to make a film a certain way. And if he planned very carefully, then the studio couldn't re-edit his films any other way than the way that he had already planned. Yeah. You know, you don't have to look very far to see the influence that he has had on the filmmakers of today. A lot of films that will come out will be described as Hitchcockian. You know, they're they're very (laughs) – it would be a film that Alfred Hitchcock would make today. So I thought we could spend a minute or two here talking about – uh, filmmakers that you feel like have been influenced by Alfred Hitchcock, by the work of Alfred Hitchcock, or maybe what films are out today that might look like one that Alfred Hitchcock himself would have made. Yeah, I was thinking about this um, this week, and I think probably the last time that I thought, oh, this filmmaker is trying to channel Alfred Hitchcock okay. is in a lot of the work of M. Night Shyamalan. Yes. I think he definitely is like, I'm trying to channel Alfred Hitchcock, maybe unsuccessfully in certain circumstances. Especially his earlier films. Especially his earlier films. I think if you watch Signs, it is such a Hitchcockian Mm -hmm. film. I mean, there's even elements where, um, you know, there's this scene in Signs where they're trapped in their house and they board up the windows. And you can hear things on the outside of the house, but you can't see things. Exactly. And I think that's very Hitchcockian where you can hear, but you can't see. Yeah. Or there's this very uh, ambiguous space about what's happening and we don't know. We don't know what's out there. Yeah. And that's what adds to the fear and the suspense. I think one for me, and you mentioned obviously M. Night Shyamalan is one that a lot of people would associate with Alfred Hitchcock, and that's probably what he's going for. Um, but a film that just came to mind when you were talking about that was a film uh, by a gentleman that usually wouldn't necessarily be associated with Alfred Hitchcock, and it's uh, Frank Darabont, who directed the film The Mist. Oh, yeah. Which is interesting because on the surface it seems like it's just kind of a creature feature, but the real terror from that movie, and there are scenes where, you know, this mist has overtaken this town and you have this group of people that's trapped in this grocery store and you really can't see a whole lot of this creature that is terrorizing this town in this mist. What's really terrorizing is what's going on inside the grocery store as people start to turn on each other and as religious zealots start to convert people to their cause and their way of thinking really kind of creepy. Um, so that would be a film I would think would be typical of, of Alfred Hitchcock. Something like that, again, where things are left to the imagination or 
what people are capable of doing maybe is more terrifying than what a monster could do to you. Right. You know? I think Hitchcock would definitely agree that people are far more frightening than monsters. Yeah. Because it's the the uh, the the id, I guess, the unknown of what people are capable of. And that's definitely a Hitchcockian sort of idea. Yeah. I would also kind of go out on a little bit of a limb and say that uh, the Coen brothers definitely yeah, have I a Hitchcock feel to some of their films. And I think part of that is... While Hitchcock is known as the master of suspense, Hitchcock is also has these this uh, pantheon of very quirky and weird characters and these elements of dark humor that run throughout his films. And I think the Coen brothers have a similar, maybe amped up a little bit. Oh, but yeah. But this pantheon of quirky, strange characters in these uh, dark humor situations where, yeah, people are sort of unknown quantities and... And we're not sure what people are capable of, and but there's this um, kind of strangeness to yeah. a lot of the things that feels very Hitchcock. Interesting thing about the Coen brothers, too, is they've, they themselves have kind of created this new genre where now people are comparing their types of films to the Coen brothers, the work yeah. of the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, one other film I would mention is kind of a recent one. I thought it was a terrific film. And again, so much of it is left to the imagination. Did you see the film 10 Cloverfield Lane? No, I did not. You need to see that. That's a <laughs> film that a lot of people compared to the works of, of Alfred Hitchcock because, again, it keeps you guessing this whole time. You have these three characters. That's it. These three characters that are in this bunker and this girl is blacked out in a car accident and all she knows is that the person that brought her down there is her savior. He keeps saying, I saved you. You know, the world is ending up there, and the only place that's safe is down here in this bunker. So you're wondering the whole time, is this guy a creep, or is he really this savior that he is professing himself to be? So films like that that are in such tight spaces keep you guessing the whole time, wondering what people's true motives are, are really what makes some of Alfred Hitchcock's uh, greatest films so great. Uh, One thing I thought we could do now is to each pick a film and just go a little deeper into it, just kind of dissect it, whether it's by, you know, the costumes or the story or the visuals, the music. And it doesn't necessarily have to be one of our favorite Alfred Hitchcock films. In fact, the one I wanted to talk a little bit more about is not one of my favorite Alfred Hitchcock (laughs) films, but I'll let you start. I was actually going to talk about Vertigo, which is an excellent film. I don't know if it's one of my favorites. Okay. But it is a lot of people's favorites. And there are some amazing both psychological, uh, visual, story, character things that are happening in there. But there's also some like kind of creepy things happening in there that make me feel a little unsettled when I watch it. So it might not be quite my favorite. Creepy in a different way that I don't like. Uh, (laughs) So Vertigo is really interesting because it's coming closer to the end of Hitchcock's career. It's um, in the 50s. And of course, Jimmy Stewart, who Hitchcock really loved to work with. Um, And Vertigo is like such this interesting story because there's this like quasi ghost possession sure. uh, storyline with the with the heroine and then you find out that it's all like this ruse spoiler alert um <laughs> but just the i think the crafting of vertigo is probably one of hitchcock's finest um you've also got a lot of experimentation in terms of visuals um the color is very very interesting you've got 
um, these reds and greens that are pulling throughout the film. Uh, you've got that very interesting beginning. You've got the great music that's going on. I mean, I think the music adds, um, I don't know, 110 percent to oh, sure. Vertigo because that's... it's so memorable. Yeah, uh, of all of the Alfred Hitchcock films, that the Vertigo, the Vertigo album is one of two Alfred Hitchcock albums that I have. Yeah. Or I should say Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. Who, Bernard Herrmann, who's a master of music. Absolutely. And it's both got the tense uh, suspense theme and then the very romantic theme for the heroine in that film. Mm-hmm. And they're both really, really great musical pieces. Um, and I think everyone focuses on sort of the first, I don't know if it's the first two-thirds of the movie, where you've got the mystery and Jimmy Stewart is following um, the character who thinks she's Carlotta, this dead woman. Um, and then you've got, you know, the great iconic, uh, bell tower and the Spanish mission, which is amazing. You've got the, the walk through the redwood forest and the really amazing scene that, you know, everybody always references where she touches the tree, uh, outline and says, I was born here and I died here. And which, which is so haunting and great. Yeah. And the acting is amazing in that film. Uh, but I think sometimes we forget about the aftermath is that, you know, Jimmy Stewart kind of has a mental breakdown, and we always forget about that part. He, sure. Jimmy Stewart has this mental breakdown. He's got to be recuperated. Um, he's got this really strange relationship with his friend, who's this um, artist, um, that she's in love with him, but he's and not in love really with her. And you really feel for her. And you really feel yeah. for her. She's a very sympathetic character. And then you've got the part that is very creepy to me, which is when Stuart finds this woman on the street and decides to remake her. Absolutely. Into, uh the woman of his dreams who really is a dream because she doesn't actually exist. Right. And then the the weird twist on that is that that's essentially what Hitchcock does with a lot of his uh, female leads is Hitchcock actually takes them and literally remakes them into the sort of like idealized, blonde, notorious sort of Hitchcock yeah. character. So it's like there's a weird, creepy layering of... Jimmy Stewart's character is remaking this woman who actually turns out to be the actual woman he's in love with. So there's all kinds of weird things going on there. But the idea that Jimmy Stewart is going through this process that Hitchcock literally does with almost all of his heroines. Yeah. Which is just kind of weird and unsettling at all kinds of levels. <laughs> so, But I, it's a great film. Mm-hmm. Um, and just – and so tragic at the end. So I have a couple of comments as well on Vertigo, but we'll come back to that because, spoiler alert, it's on my list of top five. <laughs> uh, but the film I want to talk about is The Wrong Man. I just watched this yesterday. And – I I will say I want to give this film credit because one thing it does really well is it tells a true story pretty accurately as far as I understand. And it really focuses more on the visuals than anything else, in my opinion, and trying to just tell a true-to-life story. So much so that Alfred Hitchcock doesn't do his typical cameo that he makes in most Mm -hmm. of his other films – but uh, there's a little bit of a, uh, a message that he shares at the beginning. This every word of this story happens exactly as it's presented here. Uh, and he's shown in silhouette. So you don't even really see him all that well. But I think for me, this film is kind of a victim of the mindset of I have no idea where this film is going as well as, well, it's not what I was expecting to get from an Alfred Hitchcock movie, which was a little disappointing to me. But one thing I really respect about this film, in addition to just kind of the departure from what he's used to doing, he's trying to tell a story 
really as close as possible as it was. And I'm, I'm sure there's some uh, dramatization in there with characters and, and for story purposes. But it's very much a slice of life. They do a wonderful job of showing the effects of being wrongfully accused of a crime, the aftermath of that, and how it affects you. Even if you walk away with your freedom, there's psychological damage there. There's mental damage. There could, I mean, there's potentially damage to your career, which is one thing I, I took issue with a little bit because, you know, while he's being, you know, while he's on trial for this, he still has his job as this musician at a night at a nightclub, which I didn't totally buy, but it's probably the truth. Um, But he does a great job of visuals and framing and moving the camera around in a way that really helps you sympathize with the character and and really get a very clear idea of what that character is feeling. There's a scene when he's in a jail and he's his head is swimming. He does not know what's going on. He's having to ask the cops what just happened, like explain to me what this judge just said. And he's put in the cell for the first time, has not been able to say one word to his wife over the phone. And so he is his mind is just swimming. And so the camera is kind of moving around in this circle. Great job on the visuals. Again, a score by Bernard Herman. It seems to be Alfred Hitchcock's go to guy. But I guess for me, it, I, I just I was expecting it to go a certain way and it didn't. It was just here's the story for what it's worth. And it didn't really work for me, but I have, I have uh, high respect for him and why he made the choices he did with this film. Well, we think of it sometimes as a departure because it's not visually the same as a lot of his other films, especially we tend to think about sort of the late stuff like sure. uh, Psycho and Vertigo and North by Northwest and those things. And they have a little bit of a different visual feel. And I, and I think part of that is also camera technology is changing mm-hmm. over time. Um, as you move through Hitchcock's career. The Wrong Man is really interesting because it does deal with a lot of things that Hitchcock uh, is kind of obsessed with, Is if you want to say it that way, that they appear over and over. And wrongfully being accused is something that happens a lot in his films. And if you think about The Man Who Knew Too Much and North, North by Northwest, um, this idea that there's a system that can work against you. And Hitchcock's sure. idea of the maybe the legal or the police system um, but also socially, there's a lot of uh, that happening in a lot of his films. And then it pairs nicely with one of his really early films, um, which I don't know why the title is escaping me right now, where a woman actually does kill someone and then she gets off free. Oh, I can't remember what that is. I want to say it's blackmail. Oh, yeah. I, I haven't seen that blackmail. one. Huh. Uh, blackmail is really not a lot of people have seen it because it is one of his early films. And it's this interesting film because it's in the transition between silent and sound film. And so you get like these weird elements that feel like a silent movie in the film. And then you've got elements that feel more like a regular movie. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because it's an early Hitchcock film before he comes to the U.S. It's made in England. Um, the protagonist is a female which is a little bit, I mean, he has a few female protagonists, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because she actually is guilty, and we know that she's guilty. Yeah. And so the suspense is, well, should she be go to prison? And she feels guilty for killing this man, although she kind of justifies it because, well, it's justified because the man was going to rape her. Yeah. So the idea that she's guilty, but it's self-defense, so she really probably shouldn't get convicted, but the justice system isn't going to understand that. And then right. her boyfriend is this police officer 
who gets involved in the case and doesn't want her to go to prison either. And so even though she sort of gets off free in the end of the film, you have this kind of like, well, I guess that's good feeling. So it's very complicated. Brings up a lot of discussion points, too. Yeah. Okay, so what I want to do now is I want us to share our top five favorite Alfred Hitchcock movies. And I'll start with my number five. One criticism that I would have of a number of Alfred Hitchcock films is that he doesn't quite stick the ending of the movie. <laughs> and the number five pick for me is cer- – that's certainly true for me in this case. In the end, I chose Strangers on a Train. Which is an excellent film. It is an excellent film. And one thing that I love about this film, which is true I think of most of these films, is it has a great villain. Yes. A man – the actor that they chose to portray this villain is just a creepy guy. And it has one of the best premises of an Alfred Hitchcock movie that you can get, this idea of flip-flopping murders. Hey, you and I both have these people we love to get rid of, but just hypothetically, you know, (laughs) what if we were to swap places and you murder the person I uh, want out of the way and I murder the person that – well, you get the point. The the flip-flopping of the murders. And uh, again, great villain. Genius premise. But for me, he doesn't really stick the landing. It's one of those endings that's kind of drawn out longer than it needs to be and kind of this silly chase on a carousel Carousel. that doesn't really work for me. But that's going to be my number five pick is Strangers on a Train, which has been mimicked in other movies. And I feel like I've seen in a lot of TV episodes them taking that premise because there's so many of those, you know, procedurals, uh, cop shows, and the solution is to... Oh, the solution was, oh, they did each other's. And I feel like I've seen that a lot. And that's definitely uh, an homage to Hitchcock. Yeah. So I'm going to choose a a Dark Horse number five film that people don't talk about just so that I can talk about it. Um, Also because it's a very – I mean, not that all of Hitchcock's movies aren't rewatchable, but I feel like it is a joy to rewatch The Trouble with Harry. That's what I've wanted to revisit. I've only seen it once many years ago. And so The Trouble with Harry is interesting because it's not a typical Hitchcock film. It didn't do well box office-wise. But I think the part of Hitchcock that I like um, with those quirky characters and that dark humor, I mean, and that's just what the film is all about. So The Trouble with Harry is that he's dead and a bunch of different people think that they killed him. (laughs) <laughs> and people aren't really sure who actually killed him. Yeah. So there's these hilarious sequences where the bar- body gets buried and reburied and unearthed and several times. Um, and you've got this whole uh, collection of very interesting characters. You've got this uh, artist living in this random rural community in Vermont, this woman who's moved there with her son to sort of escape her past. You've got this retired sea captain, I believe. is He's a sea captain. <laughs> and you've got this lonely old lady. Um, and then the sort of competent but not entirely trustworthy sheriff who's trying to solve this case. And so it's sort of like this comedy of darkness of uncovering and recovering this body. Yeah. But then there's also like these interesting romantic pairings that happen in the film um, that just make it very fun. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to go back and watch and that. And it's, be- it's a gorgeous film because it's filmed, I think, on location in Vermont. And so it's very beautiful. Oh, yeah. Okay. So my number four, there, I mean, there are several Alfred Hitchcock films that are kind of the the bottle, you know, movie where it all takes place in one location. And I've only seen this movie once, but it had such an impact on me that I put it as my number four. And it's Dial M for Murder. 
it's I think I believe it's based on a play and it really does just take place in this apartment and that's it. And it's this this gentleman who finds out that his wife is being unfaithful to him and he would like her out of the way. And I, if I'm correct me, if I'm wrong, I think there's some money involved, like he stands to gain her inheritance if, if she dies. So he hires this man to off her. And let's just say, like any other Alfred Hitchcock movie, it does not go it does according not to go plan. Well. And so there's this uh, this police detective that's trying to solve this mystery the whole time. What I love about this film, again, the villain. He is very charming. He has this he has this smile on his face throughout the movie. <laughs> And he looks eerily similar to Jimmy Stewart. He's kind of like a British <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. This was a this is a play I would love to go see in the theater. Uh, just such, I mean, and you're you're just wondering the whole time. Oh boy, is he gonna is he gonna get away with this? And part of you doesn't mind if he does because he's he's kind of a charming guy. So my number four pick is Spellbound. Really? Yes, I really love Spellbound. It's it's one of my favorites. And um, part of it is because I love the weird dream sequence, of course, the very famous Salvador Dali yeah. dream sequence, which yeah. is amazing. And, and Ingrid Bergman is this very interesting character because she's like this not very typical uh, female protagonist. Mm-hmm. She's this uh, psychiatrist. And she has to solve the mystery of, one, who this guy is who shows up um, because nobody knows who he is. Um, he has amnesia. Uh, he might have murdered somebody, but yet she still falls and is, in love with him. Is he going to murder me? Yeah, is he going to murder me? But she still <laughs> falls in love with him, which yeah. is a very Alfred Hitchcock thing to happen. Yeah. Um, and then there's these this great chasing, right? And the of course the film ends trying to go back to the place where the the murder has taken place. Yeah. Um, and the and I forget his name is, but Gregory Peck, who's yes. the hero, who's a great actor. Right, he's convicted of murder, but then it, then she, but then she discovers that he's not, and she has to solve the murder on her own, which is quite interesting. And uh, fun fact: they filmed all the snow lodge stuff in Alta. Yeah, so oh, that's really? nice huh. um, for us here in Utah. Um, but yeah, I just it's a great film. There's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of tension. Um, a lot of twists and turns, which is also very fun. I feel bad because I made the mistake of I watched this recently. Made the mistake of having it on in the background while I was trying to book a hotel on <laughs> on a website. And so I was I kept thinking, what is going on? Because it does have a lot of strange visuals that I really didn't uh, give it the treatment it deserved. So I yeah, I regret that. My number three is Vertigo. And the word I would use to describe this film, you already used to describe this film, is haunting. There's something – the first time I saw this, there was just something about this film that made me want to revisit it and that I just could not get out of my mind. And I think that, if done right, can be a very good quality in a film. Which is really interesting because the film itself is about obsession. Exactly. And then there's this interesting obsession that happens with yes. us as we watch the film and want to rewatch it. One of the best scores in a film – in fact, it was used – a portion of the score was used again in the film – the Artist, I don't know if you remember yeah. that, mm-hmm. uh, which was a best picture of the year, in a very climactic and uh, gripping scene in that film. And, yeah, I think I, I share the same sentiments that you do on this film is the implications of his actions 
are kind of scary and unsettling. That you have this great actor that everybody loves and can identify with. And if it was a different actor, it probably would be ultra creepy. Exactly. It wouldn't have worked. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why Jimmy Stewart in this role works so well is because after the film, and I think Alfred Hitchcock loved it. He loved it when his audience had this feeling of after the fact, thinking back and saying, hey, wait a minute. What about this? This couldn't have happened. He loved that. And I had that feeling after watching this film of, that is the creepiest thing, trying to dress up this woman like a dead woman. And then there's like there's the the uh, discussion of necrophilia, and mm-hmm. it's just really kind of disturbing. <laughs> but uh, great camera shots that a lot of people copy, you know, with the mm-hmm. pan or uh, moving the camera back while zooming in at yeah. the same time. Spielberg does that. A lot of filmmakers do that. Now, my number two uh, – it's oh, it's so good. It's almost my number one, but it's Rear Window, also Jimmy Stewart. Again, a movie that takes place all in one setting in this apartment building. What's great about this film, aside from the various uh, suspenseful scenes, especially toward the end of the film, is Hitchcock essentially tells about a half a dozen different stories without any dialogue. Yes. You get everything you need to know about these various characters without hearing anything they say which is so difficult to pull off. I, I think another film that does it really well is uh, WALL-E, those first yes. 45 minutes of the film. <laughs> Very difficult uh, to pull off. He does it so well. And, of course, Jimmy Stewart, who's just somebody that we can all identify with, considered one of the greatest actors ever. Grace Kelly, who's who's not too difficult on the eyes either. <laughs> I, that's a little shallow. but uh, And she's also a terrific actress. My number one film uh, is Psycho. And I know a lot of people will take issue with the ending of the film. I don't. I think it's actually quite effective that they give you this little bit of a break to kind of take a breather and then give you one of the most disturbing endings of a film I've ever seen that works so effectively with voiceover and with visuals. Um, What I love about this film, like any good scary movie, for me, all of the scary parts in this film – are not the shocking, scary parts that uh, other people are were scared at when they first saw this film that made them jump out of their seats. It's the dialogue. It's the writing. It's the close... It's the psychological impact yes. rather than the, the, yes. the visual violence. The scene where she's escaping, and she's imagining... She's not. She doesn't have this power where she's hearing what people are saying about her. She's imagining what people are probably saying about her back at home yes. where she's stolen all this money. And then another great scene when she's sitting in Norman Bates's office with him sharing some sandwiches. And as she makes a suggestion to him, maybe, you know, with good intentions that maybe he should put his mother somewhere in an institution, mm-hmm. he starts to kind of unwind and take offense to that. And you start to get a little glimpse of Maybe he's got some issues here. <laughs> and again, plus all, there's that really ominous bird in the background oh, during yeah. that sequence. That's really great. Foreshadowing. For, for foreshadowing. Yes. And then also, again, very disturbing. It did a lot of things that were unconventional and not really that he was allowed to do at the time because of censorship, <laughs> but that he somehow got away with anyway, which we could do an entire episode or we could you do, could an, do entire an entire interview on yes, this. Yeah. You can. Um, but just very disturbing this idea of a peeping Tom, which again, we won't get too much into that. So much can be talked about in this film. And 
I'm still scared to this day of this film. It's my number one scary movie of all time. Well, Psycho's a really interesting film in that it's made like right at the end of the censorship. I mean, the yeah. censorship had kind of been breaking down for a long time. And Psycho's this really interesting uh, piece for Hitchcock because it is almost straight up pure horror which he wasn't re- he which he didn't do before that. Yeah. Um and there was a lot of controversy that he was doing this more horror uh oriented film and people were like, "Well, why don't you go back and do those glamorous films like you did before?" And Hitchcock, even though he was older and he could have retired, he wanted to keep pushing those boundaries and keep creating yeah. and thinking, "What else can I do?" Yeah. Right? So, my number 3 is The Man Who Knew Too Much. Which one? The 1950s one with Jimmy Stewart. Okay. Um, yes, because it is a remake of an older one that he did when he was in England. I don't know. It's sound. I don't think the older one it is. It is, yeah. It's sound. Yeah. Um, and I just love this really interesting dynamic of the family. It is, I think, the only Hitchcock film where really the protagonist isn't just one person. It's the whole family. Yeah. And so I think that's really interesting, and I love this interesting dynamic in the family where... Uh, Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day have to go save their son. And so the stakes are really high, right, because it's their son and you feel for them. Um, And just like it's not mistaken identity, but the fact that people are trying to um, to coerce them. And this is not their world. This world of espionage is totally out of their element because he's a doctor and she's a singer. And and that's just right. It's just great because we're thrust into this world that we don't know, which is a great Hitchcock sort of trope um, and trying to navigate this larger than life situation how do you even manage um in something like this and they do it's really interesting because they use what they know to solve this mystery and to actually like save someone's life and and there's like this great scene where doris day comes into the concert hall and she screams and she's (laughs) and she throws off the assassin by just screaming and causing a panic in this concert was an amazing sequence i've always wondered why he chose to remake this film and i wonder if it's just so he could make it more accessible Maybe Hmm. Um, he could have wanted another opportunity to work with a great group of actors because there's some amazing actors in there. Maybe he wanted to go to Morocco because that's also exciting. Get a paid vacation. Get a paid vacation (laughs) because in later Hitchcock films, I feel like there's a lot more movement. They get to go to more locations. And I think part of that is Hitchcock is well established as a filmmaker. And now that he can, I mean, we know he's the master of doing things in one room. I mean, you talk about rope. Yeah. Um, But the idea that now he gets to use these interesting locations because he's got the budget yeah. and the power to do so, which is, is amazing and I love it. And I also love that it's like such an interesting concept that to save the son at the end, sorry, spoiler alert, that uh, Doris Day has to sing, which is like such a different kind of solution yeah. to a problem. And yeah. I thought that was really, interesting. really interesting that she has to sing to save her son. Yeah. My number two is also Rear Window. Yes! <laughs> I think Rear Window is just amazing on so many levels. Um, and it's this idea that we, along with Jimmy Stewart, are sort of immobilized, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of being powerless yes. in a situation that really requires us to have some more movement in our lives. The use of our legs. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so it's really, I just love this, like, well, we are powerless. And even though we're in this powerless position, what can we do? Mm-hmm. And plus, I love sort of the play on voyeurism, which is such a 
a more common thing now that we think about as voyeurism and surveillance and watching. Again, and if it wasn't Jimmy Stewart, we'd probably be creeped out. Like, who is this creepy guy watching yeah. his neighbors? Yeah. But then again, how many of us look out the window and like watch our neighbors? Like, we do that all the time. Let's be people, honest. People watching is what we call. We people don't call watching, it peeping right. Tom. It's not. We're not people. It's it's people watching, right? Yeah. Um, and there's such great tension in Ruendo too because of the helplessness, right? Yes. When Grace Kelly goes over to the apartment and is looking for things, right? There's just like so much tension because you like can't do anything. Again, you don't hear any of that sound because yeah. it's all from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. so it's good. Am- it's amazing. Yes. And the falling out of the window at mm-hmm. the end is amazing, right? And the irony of breaking his other leg, which is yes. fantastic. <laughs> um, and then my number one is North by Northwest. Yeah. I am a huge Cary Grant fan, so that also is part of it. And Cary Grant did lots of films with Alfred Hitchcock. And I think it's really interesting because Cary Grant was kind of interested in retiring before he even did To Catch a Thief with Hitchcock, which was a couple years before North by Northwest. And I'm so glad that he didn't retire because I think North by Northwest is Cary Grant's best film and Alfred Hitchcock's best film. Wow. Um, There's so many amazing scenes in North by Northwest um, and the film itself is well executed but just there's so many memorable iconic mm-hmm. amazing and then once again Albert Hitchcock using locations locations are almost another character in North by Northwest um, from the train there's so much interesting things happening on trains in North by Northwest yeah but also the there's this amazing sequence um, uh, when he goes to this big house Right, and they're interrogating him, and then he goes back to the house, and oh, we don't know what's happening. This house has been closed for how many months? And so there's like this great, interesting use of sets and locations, and of course the famous scene where he's like driving and almost falling off the cliff, which is an amazing yes. sequence to film. Um, and then of course there's the iconic stuff at the end where um, there's the shooting scene inside of the visitor center and. Mount Rushmore where they go. And, of course, mm-hmm. the iconic scene at the end where they're racing across Mount Rushmore. I mean, it doesn't get any with better Martin than— Martin Landau? Yes, with Martin Landau as a villain who's an amazing villain in this film. But just mistaken identity, lots of twists and turns, um, the crop duster scene. I mean, that That's, is, yeah, so, that is so one iconic. of the best scenes. But I, I absolutely love the idea of, well, what would it be like to have a chase scene on Mount Rushmore? And I just think that is— um, like an amazing idea, one and two, like incredibly well executed, and adds so much to the typical chase scene. Yeah, in a film. Well, Kimball, we've really appreciated your time here. We've I've had a great time speaking with you about the career of Alfred Hitchcock. And again, this is something that people teach courses on. This is something that people will spend people two have hours... devoted their whole careers to studying yes. Hitchcock. And as we shared, people will make a documentary based on one scene of one of his films. <laughs> so it's crazy. There's a reason why people are still talking about him today. People are still making movies about him, and people are still very heavily influenced by him. I wish that some of the horror and suspense movies of today would borrow a little bit more from him because they do tend to go a little bit more for the quick buck and the cheap thrill of the jump scares and all that. But uh, if you want a good scare, just go back and watch the good old films of Alfred Hitchcock. And there are so many that we could have talked about that we didn't. You need a good scare that stays with you. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's a great way to put it. And if you've, uh, if you've seen your favorites over and over, then maybe try to discover a new one. 
We're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to be speaking with Spencer and Jerem of BYU Sports Nation. This is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. Well, if you're listening to this song, uh, then you know what that means. And I'm sure our brethren at BYU Sports Nation are going to love to talk about this today. We've got Jason Shepard and Brian Logan. How are you guys? We're doing pretty good. Uh, certainly not as good as you being Woo-woo. the Dodger fans. But yeah, we're doing pretty good. You know, I'm so excited for uh, Kike Hernandez, who is from Puerto Rico and was just talking last night about how good this is for Puerto Rico, for him to be going to the World Series. Like seven RBI for him last night? Three home runs, one of which was a grand slam. I think only a handful of other people have hit three home runs in a postseason. I think Altuve was one of them. He did it earlier in a series in one game, first game. That's how you get tested, right? (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't test Kike Hernandez because he hardly ever plays anyway. Okay, then he should be fine then. Yeah, that kind of came out of nowhere a little bit. For him to have that kind of power at that moment, that was actually pretty cool. And I have to say, like, my night sports-wise was not great because I'm a Chiefs fan, and we for those that watch the NFL game, we know it. We know how that ended for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the end of it, I was, I was trying to find something positive to hold on to. And so as a St. Louis Cardinals fan – I, oh, no. I don't want anything positive to happen to the Cubs. So I tweeted out, well, at least the Cubs season ended tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so for that series, I was rooting for your Dodgers. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure Jerem is happy, too, because he was at uh, he was in the first series. He was at one of the games. I went to the game one of the second series. So, uh, yeah, it's an exciting year. And really, they're doing what every team should be doing, and that is utilizing every player. If you go look back at that series, it's really kind of a mixed bag of who was the star of the night. You know, everybody has stepped up, and it's really just been an amazing postseason for them. Well, I mean, you look at that roster. I mean, that's that's been their M.O. all season long. I mean, yeah. with, the, with the talent on that roster, you know, when you've got somebody in a slump, you've got three other guys that are, you know, hitting 320 and it's it's that's why I'm I'm hoping that it is a Dodgers Yankees World Series oh me too that is the matchup I want to see I think that would be a compelling World Series and talk about ratings that would pull in huge ratings compared to other years yeah two the two media markets of New York and LA in the World Series yeah I'd say that's uh, probably going to get some eyeballs on the old TV Hey, so yeah, that's uh, like mine because I don't watch. Them. See, Brian here just what? said that he only he only tunes into the baseball when they get to the World Series, and it has to be like Game Seven and like. Well, well seventh, what if it doesn't seventh, get to Game Seven? Like seventh inning. Then I could understand that because <laughs> last last year it was the Cubs and the Indians. Both teams were knocked out of the – interesting because the Indians were kind of favored to win the World Series this year. And uh, I – yeah, I only watched Game 7 of the World Series, and it was one of the best games I've ever seen. Yeah, it was yeah. – that's a fantastic – see, I, I just love baseball. I'm the kind of guy that can actually watch a a game involving two teams that I have no connection to in terms of, like, fandom – on like a a Thursday afternoon in July. Oh sure. I, I mean I'm fine with that. I played baseball. I think up until my sophomore year of high school, and uh, played baseball first before football. 
And so I could play it. I could, you know, I, I could go out and go to the batting cages, play catch with my son, but I cannot watch it. I could really? Watch it. If I'm if I'm there at the park, I could watch it. Yeah. But if I'm on TV, no. There's too many. There's too many uh, other opportunities to do stuff. You know what? the <laughs> The girls' little league World Series could come on, and I would still want to watch it. Oh, I could watch that. I could watch little yeah. league. Yeah. I see, watch. I can't do the little league. You know what's weird though? I I love softball, man. I love, really? I love softball. And I'm not talking about you know guys going and playing with their work and yeah. playing in the league. I'm talking about real. Legit softball. You need to come check sure. out the BYU uh, softball team. Yeah, why they weren't you on the team? I, I do. I bring my. I bring my son. I. I. St- I stay in the back, man. You know, I let my son roam around. Well, you don't you know, need like, everybody coming up asking for pictures and autographs. I get sure. it. No, no, I'm not yeah. talking about that. I'm not talking about that. It's just my son, you know, <laughs> which all kids, you know, at the age of five and six have ADD, and so he just likes to run around. So I kind of just watch from afar. But uh, yeah, man, I could. I could do. I could do softball. And my my wife, oh, she hates it. She's like, why are we watching softball? Why? We, I would rather watch anything else in the world except for this. Well, I'm no. guessing on your show coming up here in just a few minutes, you guys are not going to be talking about baseball or the Los Angeles Dodgers, or maybe for not that long, right? No, that's that's not necessarily on the uh, agenda today. We will be talking some BYU football. Uh, Cougars, I don't know if you've heard this, uh, the Cougars have lost six in a row. Oh, really? And they're looking to snap <laughs> the six-game losing streak tomorrow against a team that is really Really bad. They're also one and six, right? And they are also. It is a matchup of two one and six teams. Cougars at East Carolina. Hooray! We'll talk about that and the Cougar fans' confidence level that BYU can win the game tomorrow. It's gonna be a good one, man. Mm. It's gonna be a good one. Anything else you want to talk about, or that you're going to talk about on your show? Uh, Dennis Pitta is going to join us. We'll get his take on that. Speaking of East Carolina, their head coach, Scotty Montgomery, is going to join us. So we have a packed show on a Friday, getting you ready for the big football game tomorrow. All right, that sounds exciting. Coming up here in just about four minutes, it's BYU Sports Nation with Jason Shepard and Brian Logan. Stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss it. Before we get to that, though, I did want to give Cole an opportunity. Since we've been talking about Alfred Hitchcock on the show, I had an opportunity to share my top five of his movies, and so did our guest. And now I wanted to hear what Cole's top five Hitchcock films are. I think I'm going to bring a couple more movies to the plate. So okay. we've heard five, three different top five lists. Okay. Um, start at five, work to one, right? So mm-hmm. I have to include The Birds you in my to. top five list. Okay. Because it, just, it has absolutely no dialogue. I watched it for the first time when I was in ninth grade, and just the, the script is not good. It's a cheesy <laughs> 60s movie. And it, to think that Alfred Hitchcock did this after so many really, really great movies is really weird. But it's just a fun horror movie, and it's got some good practical effects. And It's revered by birds, a lot of people. It's fun. I, he did more serious things, and those are higher up on my list. But... I like watching the birds. Okay, so what's number it. what's number four? Right, the f- four is an earlier one. It's Notorious. Okay, um, I have not seen that. It's one. a spy drama with mm-hmm. Harry Grant, so definitely Hitchcocky. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three for me is Rear Window. Yes, which is very good. Number yes. two is North by Northwest. Okay, and then number one is definitely Psycho. You got it right, Cole. Ding 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 ding. You got the last one right for sure. That's the important one. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I We could spend hours just talking about the one film. And in the interview, we mentioned that there are people that make films about specific scenes from the film Psycho. Mm-hmm. So plenty to uh, chew up there and digest. Ugh. 
I did it again. I brought up food. I promised I wouldn't. I'm going to go home and lay down. But, you know, you probably don't care about that. So go out and have a great weekend and eat something that won't upset your tummy. And uh, we hope to see, we hope to hear you back once again here next weekend or next Monday, really, on The Matt Townsend Show. That's it for today.